Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Oh, it could happen here and earlier this week, not the week you're hearing this, but the week we recorded it, it did, it being the end of Roe v. Wade via Supreme Court fiat uh, and also the coming end of 100 years of social progress unless people get real organized and aggressive real fucking quick. I'm Robert Evans. Uh, who else? Who else do I got on with me today? Is there a is there a is there a Christopher Wong on the line? Yes, uh, there there is one. There are many others, but but I am me. <laughs> yeah, the others do not count. Um, is there a Garrison Davis on the line? The only one that I know of. That's right. That's right. We exterminated the others in a in a brutal set of purges, a la Stalin. Um, and then, of course, Shireen Lani Yunus. Shireen, I'm I'm here too. Would you yeah. like to introduce Sophie? 
And of course, I mean, the one and only Sophie. I mean. Okay. Well, that's us. Wow. And now today I am uh, intensely excited to introduce our guest, um, who is a cool person doing cool stuff to steal from oh, another one of our okay. podcasters. Cat uh, Green of the Abortion Access Front. Cat, welcome to, to the show. Thank you for coming on. I know this has been a hell week for you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now, um, you and I have a, a friend in common, and you guys were actually at uh, a national conference for abortion access when the news dropped uh, a little early. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah. I mean, now that the conference is over, I can say that we yeah. were in <laughs> one of the worst cities in the world to be in when all of this happened, Orlando, Florida, Oh, which, which is basically made of paper sets right yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, honestly like, you could have stopped that sentence at one of the worst cities to be in <laughs> yeah we had actually been out to dinner at um the oldest restaurant in florida earlier that night and it was a lovely evening um even though like some angry driver uh tried to kill our mutual friend <laughs> over a parking space <laughs> ah florida <laughs> just gloss over that part but you love and, the evening. yeah i mean you know i mean it, it only, Florida, yeah. You know, uh, also the day had started with uh, there already being a bomb threat at a clinic in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to help people find information about that earlier in the day. And then um, we went out to dinner thinking that we got to relax and then came back to the news as it was breaking and into the lobby of our hotel where um, the remaining providers and advocates that were there were... Um, just trying to make do. <laughs> yeah. So, Kat, I, I, first of all, I guess we should talk about what the Abortion Access Front does and, and your job there, because this is something I don't think a lot of people think about. It, one of the things that's become clear to me from some of the, the reaction of some folks this week on the more liberal side of things is there is a general unawareness of how violent and intense the threats against abortion access providers have been for like 40 years yeah. Um, well, so Abortion Access Front was founded by Liz Winstead, uh, my partner, who was the co-creator of The Daily Show, and started as a progressive adv advocacy and messaging hub. Mm -hmm. And so we were making funny videos about abortion, and then Trump got elected. <laughs> we were like, oh, wow, our jobs got way more serious all of a sudden. And so we had like 700 volunteers in the week after the 2016 election. And so... We started becoming matchmakers for volunteers to um, different clinics around the country. And we were doing comedy tours where we were trying to build community around the clinics um, in different states. And so we would do a comedy show, have a have a provider on at the end to talk about what was at stake locally and then get people to sign up to help because people didn't have access to contractors in many of the places we were going, you know, like we would go out and do landscaping work when we were on tour because we were just trying to help out wherever we could. And in the course of that, the nice folks at the National Abortion Federation reached out to us and were like, we're a little concerned about you putting providers on stage. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about your security plan. So they, uh, they were out with us uh, the first two years. And um, then were giving me information about people we needed to watch out for. So I got way more involved in creating these security plans around our shows and our tours and um, started doing a lot of my own research on anti-abortion extremists because as we started talking to more people, 
uh, the clinic escorts in front of the clinics, we were getting information about not just leadership, but the people on the ground who they were the most afraid of. So then I was like, I wish I could just put all this into something where I could look something up by a zip code and be able to tell who I need to watch out for in a particular area. And that didn't really exist. <laughs> so um, there was just a whisper network of escorts and then the leadership uh, research that NAP was doing. And so I started consolidating all my research into a database for all of us to be able to use and um, track uh, incidents and organizations and bad actors all over the country. I mean, that's that's extremely important, but also uh, extremely cool. Um, it is, uh, you brought up right at the start of your, what you were saying, the, that there was a, a shooting at the Knoxville clinic. Um, oh, not a shooting. Oh, no, not there, a shoot. that was, was earlier, right? There was a right? bomb yeah. scare at the, uh, at the Knoxville clinic, um, it, on Monday. And, and there was a, there was an arson at yeah. the Planned Parenthood in Knoxville, uh, this past, uh, New Year's Eve. Um, and that same clinic, that same Planned Parenthood that was burned down on New Year's Eve actually had its front door shot out about a year right. earlier. And uh, because this this is one of the more frustrating cases, if you look this up, you can see that like the fire department has said it was an arson. Um, the ATF is investigating. The FBI is investigating. They've both get, given the kind of boilerplate statements they give in those instances you don't see a lot from the local police. I'm curious if you have anything to say about like the degree to which the local police have been useful in responding to this. Well, I don't work with the local police at all. Um, sure. I, <laughs> you know, I'm a TV person that got into uh, yeah. doing extremist research. I'm an editor and that yeah. I, I sort information. Right. So like <laughs> that made sense to me, but um, I, law enforcement doesn't really take me too seriously. Um, but the people on the ground have a lot of thoughts about who it could be, right? There mm -hmm. are known people in the Knoxville area who have caused all sorts of problems. There was another arson in a different community center there too. Um, and several white supremacists were arrested after protesting at Black Lives Matter uh, event maybe two years ago. And so there's, here's the thing, there's information about the Knoxville fire that went out on Telegram with an order of nine angles Nazi claiming oh, credit fun. for it. And how hard can it be to find a pagan Nazi in Knoxville? Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, like you go to a goth club and be like, who's hit you in the face here? You know, like <laughs> So wow. yeah, I, I feel like there are hindrances to the investigation. Um, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the activists on the ground have good leads that are not being followed. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's probably the most uh, direct thing that can be said about it. What so to the extent that like there's seemingly not a lot in a lot of these states that uh, is going to be done preemptively by law enforcement. Um, when it comes to like actually tracing out the threats, uh, how much do you feel like you, you have a chance to actually stop them from carrying out an action? And how much of it do you feel is just like, we need to be documenting this for, for when it happens, you know? We're already getting early warning about events. Yeah. Um, we're already, because we track the people who, there are a number of groups that 
create the same kind of actions that are either invasions or blockades at various clinics and people who have been organizing around this for decades, right? So but in tracking them and starting to put the pieces together, we're already getting early warning about where they're headed, about who needs to be alerted. You know, there have been at this point, three incidents just and like I'm working with a group of volunteers. Mm-hmm. These are all people who either escort at clinics or part of, advo- part of advocacy orgs that, you know, are not getting paid to do intel, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they, they're invested in the cause. And so they just follow this stuff on the regular and we're all in touch with each other. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, this person who's been a part of 12 other blockades in the last three years has been seen going on a tour and said the next three stops he's going to let's tell all the clinics in the neighborhood what's happening and they can be a little bit better prepared and that's you know i mean honestly because the abortion movement is not super supported by law enforcement largely um it seemed like a necessary thing for everybody to start keeping their own records for their own safety and that's really how all this came together now, it's interesting to me that you you brought up one of kind of the lead suspects, I guess you might say, for the attack on the Knoxville Clinic was an 09A dude. I'm wondering, with kind of the threats you're seeing, obviously, there's decades of attacks on abortion access providers, including a lot of fatal attacks, assassinations, acid attacks, numerous bombings and attempted bombings. How has the character of who is making the threats and who you see as threats started to change over the la- recent years? I mean, the 09A thing is a big shift. Yeah, that's, like, that's weird. You know, uh, we've been following the same Christian nationalists for years, mm-hmm. and largely they have the same playbook. They make a few changes to it. A lot of them are older. You know, it's lock and blocks or invasions. There's a few Catholics who get really aggressive and, like, shove their way into stuff. But it's not, um, it hasn't been big surprises until recently. And, and and a lot of the time in the past, even when there was extreme violence happening uh, amongst these people, it, it was still sort of tied back to Christian identity stuff. And now we're really starting to see it branching out. And, and honestly, I blame, I blame a few things. One, just the internet in general, but also the pandemic kind of galvanized extremists across a lot of spheres. Yeah. And um, you started seeing a lot of Christian identity people that weren't necessarily militia people starting to mingle with militia people. And then, you know, militia people starting to mingle with white, like over white supremacists. And um, so now there's this crossbreeding that's happening where like, I mean, the Groypers are a great example of just like this weird amalgam of things that didn't exist in the same sphere before, and now they're their own movement. Yeah, I uh, I can't tell you how much I hate that. Like other people who who aren't weirdos who spend all of their time on Nazi Telegram know what Groypers are now. Uh, yeah, it's extremely uh, frustrating. I, it, it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, one of the weird things about doing this type of research for years is seeing like on YouTube like thumbnails by like Stephen Colbert talking yeah. about like wacky like nonsense that I've known about for years and him talking about it as like like it's this big new thing and you're always like oh wow the the little tiny corner of the internet I was just watching and staring at now is like it's something that isn't like a regular libs uh 
political lexicon and that's mm-hmm. like horrible <laughs> yeah <laughs> Joe rogan posting about the kali yuga you know oh, like, yeah. god oh yeah. god uh... that was that was a hard drinking night for me like, <laughs> like that, that was a hard bad. drinking night for me <laughs> and it's so hard to explain to people why it's so bad you're like yep. oh well it's it's just Hindu. So like, once no, back no, 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 no. in the 20s, there was this lady named Savitri <laughs> Devi. Now. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really troubling because um, it's making its way into traditional Christian identity stuff. Yeah. You know, um, evangelical stuff, quiverful stuff is now starting to cross over yeah, yeah. way more aggressively with militia stuff and and with like over white supremacist neo-Nazi stuff. It's such a problem because, and this is something Umberto Eco, you know, noted a long time ago. But like, fascism is is deeply syncretic, right? And we're that's what we're talking about right now is its ability. It's like a katamari. I refer back to that game a lot because it does just keep picking things up, yeah. and um, we don't really do that as much on like. I, I, but everyone from like the center left to like weirdo anarchists and 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 whatnot like everyone's got their own little box right and there's some interplay but for the most part people on the left really like making boxes and people on the right it's just one big ball pit where everybody's smearing their diseases and snot around and it's not great (laughs) no and i mean we need to figure out some sort of solidarity because like even with the abortion protests that are happening this week, we're already seeing people co-opting things and turning it in really destructive directions. Um, I mean, you know, the entire cult of Baba Bakian. Oh boy. Yeah. The red con folks. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually worried about that as at this point, it feels like a legit astroturf. It doesn't feel like they're fighting with actual abortion providers and saying that, you know that like abortion funds are a problem it's like those those are the people actually walking the walk and doing anything about this what are you doing besides showing up in bloody pants and picking fights with cops like yeah it's this you know one of the more uplifting stories that's come out recently is that in france um the left is doing a popular front again in order to kind of wrest control of the government from macron we'll see how it works right this is just something that's kind of been announced and but this is so, like this has happened a few times in the past in different formulations and i do kind of it would be nice to see a broad popular front in favor of abortion access on a very blunt level but that would in, involve people not just getting on board with trying to wrest control from the right back electorally but people supporting a legalism a lot of people are going yeah. to have to do things that are not legal in order to maintain access to reproductive health care you know there's the other side of it is like hardline anarchists will have to realize that working with libs is occasionally useful um and using them as body shields sometimes can can let you do more illegalist uh, type praxis so there's there's both in terms of like people who are really dogmatic on the left being like okay there's types there's certain times where this type this this intersectionalism can be really useful and then people who are less radical having to be okay with more radical tactics happening i mean my biggest fear right now is the mass criminalization event that's about to happen yeah i you know no matter what people's pregnancies are going to be criminalized in various forms. If you have a miscarriage, it's going to be criminalized. You're going to have to be more cautious about how you use your phone and what you say in the emergency room. And, 
you know, what you say to people in your own family. And I don't think that most people on our side are prepared to have that level of caution or divorce themselves from technology in the way that kind of needs to happen for people to stay safe. I'm also worried that like, as a movement, um, we're not really identifying the fact that it's all about bodily autonomy. And so that means everybody trying to access trans healthcare is, is as much or more so at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and we have so much to learn from the sex work industry about all of this, Mm -hmm. right? Like so much of what is happening now was built on like the permissiveness of what people accepted under FOSTA and SESTA. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's how all of us got deprioritized in stupid algorithms in the first place. And, and then all of a sudden weren't allowed to put ads out for like legitimate healthcare services and keeping ourselves in boxes is really doing everybody a disservice because everybody that's been criminalized, everybody who just trying to exist is at risk right now is in this together. Yeah, it's um you know there's that famous quote from um who's a, a minister of some sort during, you know, the Weimar years about first they came for you know yada yada yada. Um and it is like it's always true with fascists, but that doesn't mean that people ever spot it while it's happening, right? Because there's there's very few groups that mainstream America has less inherent sympathy for than sex workers. And the reality is that they were testing a lot of this out on those people because they are marginalized. And I guess one of the things I hope we'll see, and that might have some positive developments, is that there are a lot of sex workers out there with a lot of OPSEP tips that they can give other people now. Um, I, it would be dope if you know there were folks like setting up clinics and stuff in that. Because I, I think there's a lot of information that does need to get shared with folks who are not used to thinking about any of the stuff they're doing as illegal. I, I've been seeing stuff on you know Facebook among kind of friends of mine who are more middle of the road and family members who are pretty much centrist politically, where they're talking about like, hey, if you need to go on a camping trip in another state, I'll take you on your camping trip. And it's like, I get it. Like, it's great to express solidarity. But will you feel that way when it's actually a felony and people are getting 20 year sentences for doing it? Right. right. Like, because that's where we're headed, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, people need to get more serious about moving their data out of the country altogether, mm-hmm. you know? like thinking about what can be subpoenaed. Yeah. Um, The folks at Hacking and Hustling are doing really amazing work to spread sort of uh, sex work and sex work adjacent OPSEC knowledge to other communities too. Like they're amazing. Um, Oh, that's great. I I, I was not aware of what they were doing. Um, Would you mind giving like a little, a brief overview of what that is for folks? I mean, I've only been in a couple. I've only been in a couple sessions with them, but they're, they're generally just sharing information about like tightening up your digital footprint and also being conscious about how having multiple, uh, like if you have to have a clandestine identity online, Mm -hmm. how you can keep that from leaking over into any of your other digital identities, right? It's, it, and I mean, it's a really important distinction because even if you have something like a sock account on something like Facebook, based on how you set it up and what other accounts it's connected to and who you friend in that process, it can very easily find its way back to you and the people connected to you. Yeah. And so how do you keep those streams separate? Yeah. I mean, whenever somebody angers this podcast, we have Garrison track them down. It's very easy. Yeah. 
That is mm-hmm. that is that mm-hmm. is true. I have a whole mm-hmm. whole folder of uh, people dropping their kids off at school. That's right. Um, that's right. To get... <laughs> so you know, keep your eye out, Hello Fresh. Don't screw with us again. <laughs> or that one reviewer that said that there was the woman on the podcast who was annoying. I know oh, yeah. who you are. Mm-hmm. I I was able to ha- I was able to track back via your Apple account. <laughs> just, <laughs> just one, just one reviewer. Uh huh. <clears throat> Somebody so, tried to request access to one of my folders uh, that's connected to, we had a January 6th document mm-hmm. where we had identified a bunch of people. And so I just linked it to, you know, Google Drive things so that press people could get to stuff. <laughs> and somebody just out of nowhere tried to access one of them the other day and requested permission. I'm I, I just like, all I had to do was look up your name in the word abortion. Like, come on, try a little harder. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... Kat, I'm wondering, number one, for people who are like pissed and feeling helpless, there are things that folks can do to help, assuming you live in a state that there's anything at all around, because like a lot of people who are hundreds of miles away from any kind of clinic. But if you're not, I know there are ways people can help. Do you have any kind of pieces of advice for folks interested in being of use? There are so many things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, I think the biggest thing that the movement needs more than anything is abortion funds and practical support funds really need financial help because they are paying to move people around as ni- as needed to get them care, right? Mm-hmm. So the money thing is always the obvious, but um, we're actually having an event on July 17th that is sort of an orientation day for new people coming to the movement who want to volunteer and don't know where. So we're going to cover things like how you become a clinic escort, what it means to volunteer on like uh, an abortion fund or practical support hotline, Um, how you can get involved in lobbying groups, how you can get involved in direct action groups and sort of pre-vetting people and then getting them out to the organizations that actually have capacity to take on volunteers right now. Because a lot of what's happening, like we already saw it in Texas, where people really wanted to volunteer to help in Texas after SB8 came down. But they were doing things like calling the abortion fund hotline to try and get to people. And it's like, no, you can't clog up the hotline. That doesn't help anybody. So we're trying to take some of the lift off of the orgs that are already overtaxed, vet their people, give them some background information, give them a better idea of what the landscape is in the movement, and then make the connections to organizations that have the capacity to take them on. So it's called Operation Save Abortion. and we're going to do a live stream and uh, house parties all over the country. Awesome. Where people are either watching the streams we're doing or having their own local people to talk about how people can get active locally uh, in more direct ways. Yeah. And there's stuff like being an escort, which is is something I've, I've been learning a little bit more about recently. Um, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is like uh, from a, a, a perspective of actually like keeping folks safe. Um, is that something that you feel has like a lot of value or, or is Absolutely. that something? Yeah. yeah. Um, and is that like a, people would want to like look at, are there kind of resources for, for getting involved with that? There are. Clinic escorting is a little tricky right now because mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of clinics that don't know if they're going to be open in eight weeks. Right. So uh, right now, while well, that's all shaking out, I mean, if you already have an established relationship with your local clinic, definitely check in with them. Um, Clinics in states that are going to see a surge, um, Pennsylvania, Illinois, New York, Mm -hmm. I mean, really anywhere that's still going to have abortion after the 26 states fall, 
the entire West Coast, uh, New Mexico, right, Uh, uh, Minnesota, they are all going to need escorts, um, which clinic escorting is walking a person from their car to the clinic door past protesters. Um, It's generally, uh, I would say 99% of clinics are non-engagement clinics. So doing this means that you're there for the patient. You're not there to get in a protester's face. Some clinics um, have enough of a protester presence, like um, clinics in Charlotte, clinics in Jackson, Mississippi, where they have, they split it up and they have people that are there for the patients and people that are there to distract protesters and sort of Mm-hmm. Pull them away from uh, the door, you know, just get them a little bit removed so that they can get patients past them. This is a little bit less pleasant of a question, but, you know, I've, I've done for a different cause a lot of the same research where you're like spending time in these dark corners of the internet, making notes of people and threats being made. And um, I remember the horrible feeling of like having a specific kind of thing that hadn't quite happened before that I was sure was going to happen. And then the fucking thing happens. Um, are there particular things you are worried about in, especially like once this comes through, like that, uh, that are kind of on your horizon? Like, is there stuff that, that people need to be kind of preparing for in terms of like an escalation in, in direct action against clinics? Absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing uh, increased threats against clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, this, this bomb threat the other day was a test balloon, Right. But there are organizations like POW who are actively, aggressively invading clinics on the regular and doing things like stealing products of conception, fetal remains, right? Mm -hmm. And parading them out to the public and naming doctors um, in an effort to get them hurt, right? It's it's stochastic terrorism. They're not, Mm -hmm. they are not going to be the ones to pull the trigger. They are just putting it out there so that somebody else does the dirty work for them. And so many people are guilty of that, right? The, uh, the church at Planned Parenthood is another good example. And they've had, you know, they've had a long presence in Spokane. Um, they moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. They've set up church plants in Birmingham and they've they've been throughout um, Oregon. And, and in Oregon, they were hiring the Proud Boys as their security, which eventually unsurprisingly, turned into a big fight when counter-protesters showed up, the police showed up, tear-gassed everybody. (laughs) It's like, how is, one, how is this church? Two, you know, like, what is anybody trying to get out of this? And and so there's a lot of people who have been putting it out there for a long time that there's all this othering language of calling people demons because it makes them easier to kill. There's going to be clinic violence. I mean, there's going to be more clinic violence, I should say. All of this is violent. It's violent to have people out there screaming at you and calling you a whore with a giant sign of fetus, you know, parts. And and then, but I mean, they're really waiting for somebody to light more buildings on fire or shoot somebody and it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, does anyone else have anything to get into here? On that happy note. <laughs> On that, happy, <laughs> On that note. happy note. I think yeah. um, it's just, it's not going to be like actual Nazi extremists that do a lot of these attacks either. I think, <clears throat> especially with it uh, being, especially if, if like, if Roe v. Wade does get fully taken away, it that will justify 
uh, pretty violent action in the minds of like most regular Christians. Um, mm -hmm. Even when I grew up in like a pretty evangelical uh, type of community, those types of like attacks against Planned Parenthood were almost that like there was the there was the overall feeling that they were like celebrated and people who would do it would be lauded as like biblical heroes um for for like for like just arsoning a building like that that was very much the sense that i got when i was a kid like i i, I remember thinking thinking those thoughts like oh that's what like a good people do like that's like people who are brave will go and burn down a, a an abortion clinic they were openly celebrated you know the yeah. army of god would have the white rose banquet to raise money to by auctioning off the personal effects of people who had bombed clinics and shot doctors and yeah. you see a lot of that mirrored now in things like the saints calendar right and and so you see you see neo-Nazis and, and other white supremacists promoting the saints calendar and then directing people to the army of God website. And then you see Christian nationalists finding accelerationist handbooks and yeah. having that knowledge now. Right. And so they can have the knowledge and loosely collaborate without ever having to say, Oh, I'm a part of, you know, and Patriot like Brown or the Proud Boys or whatever. Yeah, like they won't see themselves as extremists. They'll see themselves right. as like regular Christians. They'll see themselves Righteous. as regular conservatives. And what they're doing is like is like sanctioned by God, and it's like good, righteous, holy work. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that is definitely something to keep your eye on because it's not all going to be like skull mask wearing people doing <laughs> bomb threats. No. It's going to be like it. regular, like regular conservative Christians who are who are like been on this right words track the past the past few decades most of the people that we track are are not part openly part of extremist group well yeah, yeah. not openly part of like known militant extremist groups, yeah, right yeah. but um a lot of them are a hold office you know sure like, <laughs> there was derek evans was in west virginia you've got um john jacob in indiana like uh, the whole Oklahoma contingent, it like uh, abolish human abortion has really just become a lobbying group that's trying to get people in office wherever they can. There's, I mean, they've gotten really strategic about getting people into smaller um, legislative roles so that they have more power to push things and and so that they look more respectable. Yeah, and it's I, that leads kind of to another point, which is that when you get right down to it. Once the ruling comes through finally, as it looks like it will, the vast majority of violence that's going to be done to abortion providers and to people seeking abortions and to people supporting them is going to be done by police. Like that's a, that's the eventual end game here. Yeah. And that's that's the thing I'm the most afraid of. Right. Because it's so much easier to turn somebody in than it is to actually attack a person physically yep. or a building even. <clears throat> And so that's what it's going to be. It's going to be people calling in their neighbors, calling in something from the hospital, turning in their grandkids, you mm -hmm. know. Well, is there anything right now that's making you optimistic, Kat? Not to put you on the spot. No, but... no, it's okay. I've thought about that a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, the people working in this are so dedicated to helping people that that always gives me hope. and. I genuinely feel like there's enough of us that have plans 
<laughs> you know, even if even if not everybody's on board with the same stuff, there are enough people really doing the hard work and being pragmatic about what's happening and not just cowing under the pressure of it that are energized by helping people that I think there will always be people helping. They might not always be visible, but they're there and it's just going to be harder to find them. So, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to plug before we kind of roll out here? Any place people could send donations or volunteer if they're into that? Oh, I mean, you can always uh, donate to Abortion Access Front. We're aafront.org. And um, there's a volunteer form there. But also, if you want to uh, participate in our event on July 17th, you can go to operationsaveabortion.com. Uh, and there's a registration form there to get involved in the event. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Kat Green. You are amazing. And what you do is incredibly important. Um, and to everybody else, um, go find some way to help uh, or, you know, at least uh, it's easy to pee in a water balloon. And Sorry. Okay. Well, that's the end of that. <laughs> Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It happened here. Unfortunately. Good work. Yes. Nice, we're, we're nice. Doing great at this. Nice introducing. You, you, you got it. Yeah, the, this is this is it could happen here at the podcast where it it has happened. Um, <laughs> it sure um, does. Of <laughs> your host Christopher Wong, <laughs> with me we have like seventeen thousand people. Uh, we've got Garrison. Yep. Got we've got we got Sophie. Hey. Got Robert. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> we've got we've got uh, Shireen. Yay. We have joining us for the first time. New friend of the pod, Shireen. Hello. New teammate. Woo-hoo. And we have uh, ret- returning. I think. Yes. Yeah, returning. Well, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think how many, how many returning, returning guests returning we have. Guests. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Kieran. Like yeah. Yes. <laughs> and creator of our website that I love. Yee. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you like it. Love. Yeah, and uh, we we are gathered here today uh, to talk about something that sucks, which is uh, the leaked draft of. Samuel Alito's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. It's, now, it's, we're all mostly yeah. angry that somebody dared to leak a, a draft and upset the sanctity of the Supreme Court's deliberation process, right? Right. That's definitely the thing that's been keeping mm-hmm. me awake at night. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. A bunch of elderly ghouls who refuse to give up their grip on power can't deliberate in privacy. What does this world come to? Like, Megan Kelly, is that you? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> It's been me all along. <laughs> How can I trust the Supreme Court if not everything happens in secret all of the time, always? My, in, in, in on a serious note, I, I would like to start this by stating my primary attitude towards the Supreme Court is that more stairways should be greased. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, that's my contribution. I mean, we, have, we have been big proponents of horse lube for years. Uh, years. Years. And mm-hmm. this stance continues. Um, mm-hmm. I think horse lube could solve a lot of problems. It could. So many. So I, I do think it is, uh, especially gross that like, there's a, the whole side of media people who are making the story out that... Oh no, look at this leak that is the worst thing to happen in human history. I can't believe this got leaked. And that is like a pretty dominant uh narrative going on for like over half the country. Even yeah, it, it's, even like even on like CNN, that was like the first thing. It, it's um, pretty funny too, because like the original road decision also got leaked. Like I don't yeah. think they had the text, but like the way it was gonna the way the verdict was gonna go also got leaked. It's like okay. It's like this is actually consistent so why are we angry about this it's clearly like i i get why the republicans are doing it right because it's a way number one that they can pretend to be victims Uh, there's a lot of people comparing it to like the january 6th and shit yeah that's um (laughs) yeah sorry it's the comparison to be made there is not that the leak happened no (laughs) that's 
And like, no. should it's like it leaked. Yeah. Okay. How about the fact that the information in said leak is dangerous and is going to cause a bunch of people to die? Also, there should yes. be more leaks of government things all the time. That's actually yeah. A good I, I co-sign yeah, no, that. Yeah. 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 The, the 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 government should not be allowed to keep secrets. Like, I'm sorry. Government okay. Does not you have get a right to privacy. Like, no, like, no, not well, exactly. Not, like, and we don't either. Servants? Apparently. They're literally, yeah. they're called civil servants and they're doing everything in secret. Like we're supposed to know, I mean, in a yeah. perfect world. But they're it's... spying on us. We have no privacy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, ugh, whatever. It's only fair. There's like, also like, yourselves. I mean, I guess I, maybe we'll eventually find out who did it. But like, it's also, we don't have to assume that it was a progressive that did it, for example. Like, I think the conservatives have even more of a motive to release it because they're like mobilizing their people to like agree and be like, Yes. Yeah. I, do, do we do we want to do the, the 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 weird Supreme Court inside baseball shit? Like, yes. okay. So the the weird inside baseball shit is so this is a draft decision, right? This decision like hasn't. Uh, this is this is not the law of the land yet. And the thing with draft decisions that they change, and the thing that's happening here is there's this weird split. There, there's a, there's like a three two two split on like what actually is it three two? Yeah, that that makes up seven, right? I'm like, what actually? Because like, so the, the 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 five conservative justices like don't like Roe, but there's I mean, particularly with like Roberts, there's a, there's kind of a split on like how far they want to take it, and so part of what could be going on here is that like so th this the version of of decision that got leaked is like this is basically the most extreme thing they could possibly do, uh. In, in, with in a lot of wide-ranging impacts on how we view personal rights, uh, in yeah. 2022. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's it, which you know, I'm sure like, we can talk about it later. Yeah, and like this is you know this is the thing like like the 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 nerd like Supreme Court watchers like didn't think that like this would be the thing right they didn't think that they would just straight up overturn Roe they thought they would chip at it a little bit first or like go after Casey but like no 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 they're just they're just straight up going after Roe and part of what could be the strategy here is. Like a lot of okay, so the, the the liberals on the Supreme Court like have been feckless and powerless for an enormous amount of time, and a lot of what they spend their time doing is trying to like get one or two sentences changed to be slightly less bad. And yeah. this could be an attempt to, to get the other conservative justices to like force them to rally around uh, Alito's like unbelievably hard. And the, the, the other thing that's worth noting about this is that like Alito, Alito is like. I don't know. I mean, Kavanaugh. Okay, so for for a very long time, Alito was like broadly considered by the legal community to be the worst legal mind in the Supreme Court. Like he's a clown. He's like his his legal reasoning is is really bad. Like even even by this like you know, and this this has changed with Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh to to some extent. But like this is not this is not a guy. This is not like a subtle like a subtle legal mind. This is like this is like a bull in a china shop who you throw out when you need to just like hit something with a hammer. Right. And so, you know, like, it, yeah, part part of what the strategy seems to be is to try to, to try to coerce the other justices who are like, like, like Roberts, who is like slightly less fanatical than Alito is and try to get them to rally around this like incredibly maximalist hard lined, not only going after Roe, but going after like a whole bunch of other stuff that we will get to in a second. Yeah. So that, that that's the that's the sort of Supreme Court inside baseball shit that is possibly part of what's going on with the leak, but... Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that's... Whatever's going on in the leak, the the primary 
topics of interest to most people are going to be number one, the degree to which the right's trying to use this to distract from what they're actually doing. Yeah. Uh, and more to the point, the concerted, the fact, like this is what, what we're actually dealing with here is like the culmination of 40 ish years of pretty relentless, um, a mix of pretty relentless electoralism um, married to a very effective direct action terrorism campaign that has yeah. netted the right a tremendous uh, uh, win here. Yeah. I mean, like, and I feel like this, it's a crisis, but it hasn't been treated as a crisis. And like when fucking Democrats campaign, this is like such an urgent matter. And as soon as they're elected, it's suddenly like not as urgent. Like look at fucking mm -hmm. Biden. He ran on literally caught like codifying it. He ran with that promise. And obviously that didn't happen. Um, and then there's also like to Robert's point from earlier, these justices are just like ancient and don't give up their power. And I mean, there's no use in pointing fingers, even though I, I mean, like to do we, it. So like RBG, for example, like if she had just retired at her fucking time, maybe there would be like one more justice that could fucking help us out. But there's a lot. I mean, she's got her share of the blame. There's also the fact that we've had, I think, six justices appointed by Republicans in the last 30 years. And mm -hmm. only one of those Republicans actually won the popular vote. Um, right. Which was the goal. This is not just uh, one of the most important things to understand about the anti-abortion movement is that it's not center it, like it didn't start and is not centered around abortion. It is centered around reversing all social progress of the last century. And the inciting incident was the integration of schools. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. This all started over Brown versus the Board of Education. Abortion was just the thing they realized it was easier to rally people around than segregation. Um, yep. And and that's what we're dealing with right now. So the, the fundamentally, this has always been an anti-democratic movement. This has always been about codifying into law and locking into place for essentially forever um, a minority rule in which Christian extremists would get to govern the much larger chunk of the country that does not believe in those sort of things. Yeah, and, and I think that's also worth mentioning anytime someone talks about this because the media does – like the media just runs PR for the anti-abortion movement, which is that this is unbelievably <sighs> yeah. unpopular, like staggeringly unpopular. Nobody wants this. This is like this is this is less like you can pick if like this is less popular than invading fantasy countries that don't exist. Like if 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 you like this this is this is significantly less popular than uh than than uh burning police stations down. We have the polling data on that. It's like twenty percent less popular than lighting police stations on fire. Like it is unbelievably staggeringly unpopular no one wants this except for a a very 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 well organized very politically connected very wealthy and very powerful clique of christian fascists yep. yeah well the laws never reflect what the the most of the population wants though right like look yeah exactly like the popular vote for example as you mentioned earlier so it's like i think there was a poll i was reading about this yesterday in june of last year 2021 68 percent of people thought abortion should, should be legal for, for for any reason like there's no it doesn't have to be like any kind of thing so it's like it's and there's so many polls that also just like prove that the, most people don't want this hard and fast rule but yeah the both parties i think uh utilize it to rally together people to vote but obviously for different causes yeah and like the the first reaction from 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 democrats was 
Hey, donate to our campaign. It's like, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. It's yeah. Like, yeah. The sudden honey, flood of emails. Honey, read the room. You have all yeah. the power in quotes right now, and you've done yep. nothing. Yeah. It's like, vote blue. But dare, dare saying that, and you get attacked by other Democrats by being like a radical leftist ruining right. movement because, like, it's not their fault. And I'm like, you. You've had power multiple times in my 30 years of life where you could have done it easily. Yeah, like, like, and this is this is one of the things that, like, okay, like, this stuff doesn't work on me because I remember when Obama had a two-thirds majority in the Senate. Yes. He, he, he had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, had the House, and not only did he not do this, uh, Obama, by, by 2010, Obama is codifying, anti, is codifying anti-abortion stuff and codifying the Hyde Amendment. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's like no, like, and and th- this is the this is the thing with the Democrats, right? It's, like they, this is the best thing that's happened to the Democrats since Trump left office. Like the Democratic Party, they love this. This is the best. This is the best thing that could possibly happen to them because now, what they can do is they can run on we're going to bring abortion back every single election cycle, and they never mm-hmm. do it, right? Yeah. Because every single because they'll, they'll they'll never like the stuff that they run on. Like yeah, they'll 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 they, like they will even even if they got another somehow by like magic if they somehow got another sixty vote majority, they'd find a way to not do it because this this is this is a permanent fundraising thing for them. Yep. Yeah. And they're Speaking. they're desperately in need of money all the time, always. So if you take that away, like during my brief stint in the California Democratic Party, fundraising was always a big deal and they didn't want to divest from fossil fuel and cops because then where would the money come from? Mm-hmm. You can't take campaigning on row away from them because then like they don't fucking know how to activate grassroots organizers. It scares the shit out of them. So they will be fucked if they lose this, which is why nothing has happened. Speaking yeah. speaking of money, do you know who else wants your money? That's that's right. The products and services that support this <clears throat> podcast. Wow, that's right. There. Wow. That was great. Uh, and job. you know, uh, certain <laughs> may make you infertile. So that's that's <laughs> a benefit. Absolutely not. <laughs> we are not doing this today. <laughs> We are back. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's so. We'll be we'll be talking about Supreme Court abortion stuff for a lot uh, in the coming months. Um, oh boy, we'll be talking about various different facets of it, um, different like mutual aid, like and ways of going about kind of filling in the gaps, which are going to become larger, um, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff relating to like uh, right wing terrorism against abortion clinics and all that kind of stuff. Um, the other interesting aspect about this that I want to kind of briefly talk about is that with the specific phrasing of the leaked document is it 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 threatens a whole like sect of personal rights, not just abortion rights, um, and could have far-reaching impacts uh, in terms of like privacy rights, in terms of uh, possibly even uh, backtracking on stuff like gay marriage and a whole bunch of other things. It's like it's. Obviously, the abortion angle itself is pretty massive, and it affects, you know, half half the population. Uh, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that is indi- that that indicates this like this trajectory towards this type of like right wing fundamentalist of uh, uh, Christian like Christian fascist uh, effort to hack away at all the things that they deem degenerate or things that they deem as undesirable. Well, I mean, the goal is to make America a Christian nation so Jesus mm-hmm. can come back and rule it. And you can't do that if, you know, 
people are gay or people are allowed to be on birth control or people are allowed to marry outside of their race or go to school with people who don't look yes, like I them. Did, like, I, I did read Jesus <laughs> say all of those things. Yeah, it's it's definitely in the Bible somewhere. Yep. If you If you do like that poetry style where you blot out some of the words to make other words. <laughs> Which is most now, of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The thing we got to get into that I think is is the primary question people have, right, is like beyond sort of the doom scrolling of, of all of this and all of the fear about like what's going to happen to Obergefell and Lawrence v. Kansas and all this stuff, what are they going to go for next, is like what actually will work to oppose this shit, right? Um, we, at the moment, I have not seen and I don't believe there's any objective signs that the Democratic Party is going to be particularly useful in stymieing any of this bullshit. No. Um, cinema and mansion have already come out against, uh, removing the filibuster, uh, mansion has come out against voting at all in order to codify, uh, abortion access into, into law in any kind of federal way. Um, and yeah, I, I get the sense that for most of them, it's a big fundraising opportunity. Now we do have, that's not to say it's all bad news because it is kind of, there's a possibility that this will have a, a significant impact on the midterms. Um, we got one kind of sign that way, the, the, the race in Michigan that just ended, uh, the special district or the special election where, um, for the first time in quite a while, a district that Trump carried by like 16 points went to a Democrat. Uh, now the Republican that they were running against was the guy who said that women should lie back and enjoy it if they were getting raped. Oh uh, so mm. this is one of those, like, I don't know how much we should, see that as uh, particularly emblematic of how things are going to more broadly go. But this does have, there's an activation potential, right? Because outside of the fact that the Democratic Party in a, in, as a whole is feckless and primarily a, a method of fundraising for rich people, um, actual Democratic voters are rightfully horrified about what's going on. And this has, there's a potential here to activate a lot of people and get them organized in a productive way. So I think that has to be on our minds. And, and so there's a mix of I don't want to discount electoralism, but I think that in the immediate term, one of the things that people are going to have to do is provide actual material ways for folks to get access to the health care that's going to be increasingly denied to them. Now, mm -hmm. um, we had a couple of episodes earlier in the year with Michael Lawfer of the Vorthieves Vinegar Collective. He's just gone viral in a Vice article about the hacked abortion pills that, that they've been guiding people in how to make. Um, I think stuff like that is really useful. When I started posting about this online, someone pointed out that um, pro-abortion activists in Germany recently flew drones across the border to Poland to drop off Mifeprostol, like wow. uh, uh, abortion pills, which were picked up by people in Poland. Um, and there's there's some there's going to be increasing kind of organizing around that stuff like the Jane Collective. Um, people are already organizing and from like national organizations to increase access in states where it's going to remain legal for people out of state. So I think that's going to be hugely important. Um, does anyone else have sort of ideas on kind of what what things people can do and are going to be doing to push back against this? Because I, I do think it's got to be twofold. It's got to be both, you know, pushing back in sort of a legal sense and also pushing back by direct action in order to ensure that people still have access to this stuff. 
I don't know. I don't have faith in electoral electoral anything. Uh, so I really think like if there's if it's possible to find your own community and like just almost like with I don't know uh, just mobilizing your actual peers versus like trying to trust anyone with power to get anything done because maybe I'm a pessimist. Maybe I'm just a pessimist, but what you said earlier about the person she was running against what i heard is that that person was still running and people like he was still the number two you know and i think on the other side they are their side is also going to rally against stuff like didn't oklahoma just pass like yeah the most restrictive oh, yes. ban ever a where like ban just yesterday yeah. at time of recording yep yeah. yeah so in this law women can be punished up to 10 years in prison for getting an abortion and like in pair like just for some perspective rapists in oklahoma get five years yeah so it's like stuff like that is happening in all these states and because these states people with with less resources maybe don't have the ability to travel so far i think really mobilizing community is a little bit more uh maybe just more effective in my opinion yeah i mean we have to mobilize communities but you also can't like it, it can't just end at we're going to try to like provide these people with an option to get out of the state or get access where they are like clandestinely. If it's limited to that, they're going to push to make all this more illegal federally and they're just going to keep throwing people in in prison and using the police as the enforcement arm of this stuff. There does have to be there has to be a broader counter. You know, I'm thinking back to like and I'm not talking about like picking a dude to vote for. I'm talking about like in in Mexico, right, when they were talking about um, making abortion illegal activists attempted to light the Capitol building on fire. Um, and, uh, like that, that, that kind of, like there has Mm -hmm. to be, there has to be a broader two thirds of the country thinks this is bullshit. There has to be a way of getting those people organized in a way beyond dealing with the acute problems caused by this. Like, yeah. And I, I don't entirely know what that looks like, but no, that makes sense. No, that you're right. It makes sense. Well, and I think I think that there have been signs that it's start like so. I mean, there there's obviously like there were protests like there've been protests like literally since the thing came out. There were there especially was one, in DC. There's been yeah. Also, I mean, I think I think part of like and you, LA, you can yeah. see this sort of like yeah with the DC one, you can see this sort of like I don't know. You you can see the way that people haven't I guess fully internalized the fact that the state is just trying to do this to them, and that like you know if you look at the barricades that were put up. Right, like you could just push those over, like the, mm-hmm. and there you you had a bunch of people who were extremely angry and they sort of just sat there and did nothing, right? And like this is this is the kind of thing that like you know if, if you look at what happened in L.A., there there was a lot of protests in L.A. and like the department like Homeland Security was on the street beating people, and I think if 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 there's like okay, so w- one thing that's important to keep in mind is that this still again this this the ruling the draft of the ruling is not the actual ruling, right? There is mm-hmm. still time right now in between when this in between this leak and when this is actually decided th- there is still time to literally force the court to not do this. So start greasing those stairwells people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think here's a few notes. Um so one, I think it's it's going to be used to uh encourage action on all sides. Uh there's a, it's gonna, this is going to be seen as a victory for the right and they're going to use this momentum to mobilize further uh to to put more further anti-abortion stuff into law and to encourage people to take vigilante justice out on healthcare providers. Um the second thing is direct action for 
uh, trying to alter the ruling before it happens. Like, there is a chance to do mass mobilization. Uh, there is a chance if we if, frame, if things are framed correctly, you can bring a lot of liberals out and convince them and suggest to them that they can that they could do things that they ordinarily maybe wouldn't do. Uh, there's that is an that is an entirely uh, an entirely possible scenario. Um, just in my in my episodes about the Atlanta forest from a few days ago, I discussed uh, the shack method of protest. Now this this isn't this isn't this doesn't carry over one to one because that is pretty focused on doing economic targeting. But the whole idea of targeting people outside of like the political space is a uh, key to that like people people don't just do work in the supreme court they have actual everyday lives and if you can uh surround them in their everyday lives that type of personal pressure is way more uh, affecting than just yelling at a government building sometimes um because if we can dissolve this like safe political like space that people think to think think they operated in right they assume that oh I'm a, I'm a court justice I'm a judge everything that I do happens in the courtroom right I am safe I'm contained everything is just in the confines of the courtroom I don't get to experience consequences for my actions outside the courtroom uh, which isn't true, because obviously the people, all of us, do experience th those consequences in the real world all the time. Uh, just the people in power don't have to. So instead, if we can put pressure on people when they're going about their everyday lives, uh, in their hanging banners in their backyard, doing other things, uh, mm -hmm. horse lube, again, very useful. Horse lube. Um, <laughs> that, is a, that is a way to do uh, types of protest that we have not seen as much, uh, but I think is now is probably the time to start doing that right um yeah i mean we, we saw we saw stuff after the murder of george floyd with people surrounding the house of derek chauvin which police were very angry about they did um, not so like that no. there is an indication that hey this the state doesn't like it when this happens um mm -hmm. and it's not it's not specifically more illegal to stand in the street of a residential neighborhood uh, so no and it's you know a, a lot of protests so far has focused on court buildings uh many of which are federal and those provide a lot of benefits to shall we say the defender including the fact that they're already well set up for surveillance they're generally fortified uh they have a pretty short logistic tail to where the state is keeping its weaponry and its troops as opposed to just kind of fucking with people in their lives, which is mm -hmm. a lot harder for those kind of militarized responses that lead to large groups of your friends getting arrested or beat up by feds. I, I think also, yeah. like, yeah, the, the, the tendency to go after, like, legal buildings is missing the point of where the actual power is. Like, this, mm -hmm. this is the thing with January 6th, too, is like, yeah, even if, like, yeah, they took over the Capitol and nothing happened. And the reason that, like, nothing could happen is because it's just a building. Right, like the the the, yeah. the the actual political system exists independently of it, and you have to hit the things that the system actually cares about. And so, like that's ports, that's roads, that's uh, border crossings, that's things like. Uh, why am I now suddenly vacation homes? Um, <laughs> yeah, but like, well, yeah. like, but also, I mean, like, okay, like, you know, if 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 there was actually like a way to stop this, one of the few things that could actually do it would be a large would be something like a large scale teacher strike or a thing I've talked about before that is happening this summer is for example the the the, the longshoreman contract in uh oakland is coming up right and like those are the kinds of things like if, if you can actually start shutting down large sections of the u.s economy the supreme court are political actors they will have to respond to this mm -hmm. and you can essentially like 
like you you can you can blackmail them into 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 doing the thing that they should be doing you you can apply targeted pressure economically and personally mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah and that's the type of protest that i think it would be interesting to see where that leads yeah. us they need to not they like the consequence for both the political actors who are carrying this out and the people who support them needs to be that they don't get to live a normal life um yes. that they are that they suffer consequences for hurting people and that means a, a lot of things but among other things it means that certain people shouldn't be going to the fucking grocery store without feeling the hatred you know yeah and i think i think they also, shouldn't like, be able to order delivery and feel secure that yeah. what they're going to eat yeah. isn't going to hurt them yeah and, and i think also like if like one of the things that i remembering from that was actually really effective initially from the beginning of the trump administration was the airport protests mm-hmm. and that's a place that like you wouldn't think you'd be able to really occupy because again the, the amount of security there is enormous but like if you have a lot of libs mm-hmm. you can I, I i remember like i was i was like standing in an, in, an, in an airport terminal and there was a line of riot cops attacking like everyone is like oh we're gonna get attacked but like there was just enough like everyone just sat down and there was enough libs with like their kids that the cops didn't attack and that's that that's a kind of thing that like Potentially could be replicated and also could be useful given the fact that, like, sometimes cops have, like, an aversion to, a, like, stuff that looks really, really bad on TV. Not not yeah. always, but, like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, this is the thing that can happen. It's a thing that, like, has happened in our, like, pretty recently Yeah, we can I, do again. I, I don't really trust footage of police brutality to change things anymore. Um, I feel like we reached the peak of that in 2020. Yep. And at this point, I think moving on to targeted pressure towards individuals that hold positions of power and targeted pressure to the economy um, is but speaking going of tar- to be where I mean, it's at. Speaking of targeted pressure to the economy, a large protest at an airport that the police exactly. break up with tear gas does damage to the economy that the Absolutely. police are the ones <laughs> yep, causing. Yep. Yep. Um, and like it's it's uh, it's one of those things, as we've stated, a courthouse or whatever is just a building people can not go into work and do all of the fucked up shit that they're doing on zoom. Um, an airport is not just a building, you know? And so a protest at an airport, uh, has some teeth that a protest at a courthouse doesn't necessarily. I do have one like quick other thing that I want to throw out as Mm -hmm. sort of a means of, uh, resistance or action is something that, I was trained to do growing up part of the forced birth movement is co-opting the language that the left uses. And I think something that we should do and something that we can all be doing right now is co-opting the language back. So when forced birth advocates say they're pro-life, come back with how can you be pro-life if you want someone to die by having a pregnancy and like just sort of taking words and rhetoric that has traditionally been used to oppress us to reframe it and be like, no, actually you're the one who's telling on yourself here. And you're the one who is forcing people literally to die in multiple ways. You cannot be pro-life if you support people who already exist dying. And just sort of thinking about that a little bit, if you don't necessarily have the energy to go, stage protest at an airport yep that is a great line to end on end on um everybody 
go out and again, you know, our sponsors are the Klein and Stubel Hip Surgery Center in Washington, D.C. So please do keep greasing those stairways, everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Oh, welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that's happening here right now in your ears. It could happen e- e- ear. I'm Robert Evans. Um, I'm I'm not with any of my normal uh, uh, co-hosts today because... Because fuck them. No, because I'm I'm elsewhere in the world right now, hanging out with someone you might remember from a special episode we recently did on Molotov Cocktails, journalist James Stout. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm here with Robert uh, in a tiny hotel room. And we've just woken up, ready to do some podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we're not we're not here for any specific purpose. We just decided let's rent a hotel room, cast some pods, you know, hang out. Um, James, how do you feel about the border? Negatively. Uh, broadly speaking, I think the border is a tool that we use to harm and kill the most marginalized people in the world. Um, 
I think that's kind of borne out by stats as well. So yeah, not a big, not a big border guy. Yeah, and, and you and I recently spent a decent amount of time on the Texas-Mexico chunk of the border, specifically near McAllen, Texas, hanging out at a butterfly sanctuary that people can learn some things about if they Google. We'll be coming out. That, those episodes will be dropping in the not-too-distant future. Um, but you live on the San Diego side of the border, um, which if people don't know, San Diego, California is basically in Mexico. Um, you can you can hop over across for like lunch and stuff if you really want to and don't mind dealing with CBP. Um, and yeah, so I you've done a lot of reporting around the border and about kind of the the system of violence that it represents. Um, I wanted to chat a little bit like about that, and I wanted to chat about some of the organizations that you've run into that are doing good work out there because there's a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, definitely. I think. Um... I think it's really important to like conceptualize what's happening at the border in terms of like uh, the border is a tool for state violence, right? State violence against marginalized people and like what the, the good groups, groups helping people on the border represent is like ways of us helping each other, which are outside the networks of us having power over each other, right? So uh, in the broader spectrum of like mutual aid, of mutual support, like I think they're really important to focus on rather than kind of so many people construct the border in their minds. Like uh, you can see if you go back on my Twitter, some guy just being like, that is not the border. The border does not look like that. The border is barren and it's desert and it's full of people with guns <laughs> and it's really not right. Like, so the border exists as like this mental construct, a place where we can do like political theater, especially on the right. So people who are actually down there on the ground and understand it, I think it's, uh, it, it's vital to support them. Yeah. One of the more striking moments to me when we were in McAllen was hanging out near this chunk of border fence that had been constructed by on like by volunteers effectively um and it's this it's 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 what you would expect like the stereotype of the border it's this huge military industrial looking thing the wildlife has been cleared from around it so that you can have this towering steel edifice but then a hundred yards away across the rio is the mexican side of the border and there's like couple of goat farms and like a little restaurant with a, a little dock so people can like, you know, take their little boats out and people are drinking and there's party music playing and like it's it's nice. It's pastoral and green. It was it looked like a lovely place. It looked much nicer than hanging out by the giant steel tower. Yeah, I found that all along the border, actually, like we our side of the border looks like something from, I don't know, like Blade Runner or something like it's this giant dystopian steel construct with with people with guns, with watchtowers. And it's horrific, right? Like it cuts through some of the most beautiful and important landscapes we have, right? Through the high desert, uh, through these very fragile places. Um, and, and like, it's important, I think, people understand as well what the border wall looks like, right? Because you've probably seen a photograph of giant ass wall. Um, and that is part of it. But they call it the border wall ecosystem. And what that involves is the wall itself, uh, sometimes a ditch, sometimes not a ditch, um, and then a road that's wide enough for two of the F-150 Raptors that Border Patrol like to drive um, to pass each other, and then an access road to that. And then generally there's also an access road cut that allows construction vehicles to get to build all of that. So it's not just some spikes in the desert. It, it's fucking destroying this, this beautiful part of, of both of Mexico and the United States, right? Now, before we get into some of these organizations, I'm wondering... First off, when did you start reporting on the U.S.-Mexico border? And is there any kind of specific events that, that you can recall that really kind of ignited your your interest uh, in, in this particular, like, part of the United States and this particular part of, like, our ongoing social conflict? 
Yeah, like I've always been interested in Borderlands, like academically uh, in, in, as part of my PhD. Um, but I guess I've probably about eight or nine years I've been reporting on the border. The thing that really sort of uh, took it from being like a the border is sometimes a thing I write about. I did a lot of outdoor writing about the border too, right? I was very interested in getting more people to go outside in Baja California because it's amazing um, and you should do it. But uh, what really sort of, I guess, made me be like, oh, fuck, this is fucking horrible, um, is the the 2018 quote-unquote migrant caravan, right? Um, so I'd been down just, just enjoying a weekend uh, in uh, a little further south and a little further south of Tijuana and uh, having this really good wine country there. So we'd been checking out these these wine places uh, and, and just enjoying ourselves. Um, and we come back and then these people are in um, what's called the Benito Juarez Sports Complex. It's just a baseball field and it's raining and it's November and it looks like the fucking uh, like Battle of the Somme in there. You know, it's mud. There are little children and like I've been in these situations before. I've, I've seen uh, situations with displaced people before. But there was something that just broke my heart about like, um, so obviously we, we're going to go in, right? We're going to see what's going on. We're going to see what we can do to help. Uh, and there were little kids. I remember there was this little girl. Um, and this one still makes me really sad, right? But she would find me. There were thousands of people there. Every single time I came, she would find me. Uh, she found me the first day. Uh, and... Uh, she would like, uh, we'd talk for a little bit about what she was doing. And then she was standing like halfway up her little shins in, in mud. And she didn't have anywhere to like shower or be clean. You know, she was living in a sort of tarp shelter and it just fucking broke my heart. Um, so I used to, she used to like plait my hair a lot. So I carry her around. And that was just like this realization for me, like of how cruel this thing is. Uh, shortly thereafter, of course, the police stood in the parking lot of the Tommy Hilfiger discount store in order to fire tear gas at some of the most marginalized and desperate people, uh, certainly in that part of the world, right? And just that- it's, it's a scene that like, yeah, that would, if you put that in a movie, you would be like, this is a little bit heavy handed, right? Yeah. Having them shoot <laughs> from the Tommy Hilfiger at the desperate migrants, that's a little bit heavy. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's just this advanced fucking parody of where we are as a society. But yeah, the, uh, the DHS helicopter is taking off from the Tommy Hilfiger store mm -hmm. to fire tear grass grenades at the, at the children who just want a safe place to sleep. I had a moment like that in a protest where the Portland police, we were in, um, uh, North Portland, um, which is like in a neighborhood that was like one of the, the fairly few like black neighborhoods in Portland. And the cops, you know, went ape shit and started firing impact munitions down Martin Luther King Boulevard. And I, I, I didn't catch myself at first. And I was like, the cops are now shooting down Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've been in and around, like you, you live there obviously. So who are, like, who are some of the folks that you've come across that are doing the most to actually help there? And what kind of help, like, is necessary? Because I feel like one of the one of the things I think is uh, the primary shortcoming of It Could Happen Here is a show so far is that uh, the way Garrison and I phrase it is, like, a lot of our episodes are, here's a problem, goodbye. Right? Where we're like, here's the thing that's bad. Off we go! <laughs> like, so what, I guess the two chief questions I think that need to be answered, because I'm, I'm hoping pretty much everyone here is on board with the border is a nightmare. Uh, something's got to be done. What are the kind of things that can actually materially improve people's lives uh, who are being affected by this border ecosystem? And then who are the motherfuckers who are actually out there trying to unfuck things that, to the extent that unfucking is doable here? Yeah. Um, so I think, like, 
just to further like uh, make people sad first like if you look up decolonial atlas southern border you can find this map of where migrants die when they're coming to the united states right and we Often it's constructed in the news media as like, it's dangerous crossing Mexico. It is. It's it's dangerous coming across the Darien Gap. Sure, it is. But the vast bulk of people die within a few miles of our southern border, right? Um, and that's because, especially now with the way we've constructed the border wall, uh, right before the uh, 2020 election, Donald Trump in a debate made claims about how much border wall he'd built. Like everything else, he was full of shit. Uh, so they just tried to build as much as they could between then and the election. So they just skipped the hard parts. They skip the mountains, they skip the valleys. And that often forces people to cross in the most arduous terrain, right? So that, that's increased the amount of people dying. Um, so we can look broadly at like two categories of support, right? Which are like, um, I guess, like direct aid and then legal aid. So um, on the legal aid side, the guys who, guys and, and girls and other people who, who have been really, really helpful are to the other side, right? They're, they're legal aid group. They they were very very cool during the uh, during the migrant caravan. Uh, like they and I realize that's something of a loaded phrase, right? I'm just trying to use a word that people will understand. Um, they were there constantly helping people with good cause letters. They were there filing legal briefs on their behalf. Um, as a result of that, many of them were illegally surveilled by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, with had their phones taken, uh, their communications traced, their movements traced, their network traced, etc. Um, they are wonderful people, right? Like they do amazing things with helping people get legal aid. Um, and then you've got the people who are helping people uh, while they cross, right? And there are a number of these mutual aid groups. If you're in a certain region, uh, there is, at the border, there is probably someone near you. I'm no expert on all of them, uh, but you can look at like Nomas Muertes in Arizona, uh, Armadillos, uh, I believe, I think they, I don't know if they operate also in Texas, but certainly in, in that California, Arizona area, uh, you can look at Border Angels, right? Border Angels are probably the biggest, most public-facing one, and they are fantastic, right? They're out there making sure that there are caches of water for people who are crossing, making sure that when it's cold at night, there are warm clothes, and when it's hot, there are clothes suitable for that weather, right? Maybe in a new backpack, canned food. They're, like, doing the active stuff that stops people dying. Um, and it's, that's invaluable, right? And it's also important in terms of showing that, like, they'll often write things I've seen, like, like you're welcome right welcome to this country or whatever like it's showing that most of us don't agree with this dehumanizing brutalization of migrants that the state is doing on our behalf and so showing that welcome is very important there are lots of indigenous groups um i, I did ask if i could name them but they didn't get back to me so i don't want to but like there are groups within the tohonod home nation there are groups within the kumiai nation i'm sure there are groups within other tribes uh whom the border crossed right who lived in 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 this area long before it was a border who are also out there helping people. Um, there are also individuals helping people out on their property, right? Um, if you if, if you can't find how to donate to one of those groups, you can reach out to me, that's fine. But yeah, I think the work they're doing is invaluable, both in terms of like showing people that they are welcome and in terms of saving lives, right? More and more people die at the border every year, especially with things like Title 42, which we can get into uh, with yeah, MPP. Let's, let's, let's talk about what Title 42 is. Sure. So Title 42, it's, a public, it's part of a public health law. It's very antiquated. I think it was last used in the 1930s. The idea behind it was to stop people with tuberculosis coming into the United States. Uh, and if they, have a, um, um, if they have an infectious or transmissible disease, I think it's called, then they can be immediately sent back without processing, right? Um, 
this was part of a whole suite of things that they used to do to laborers coming north, right? They would also spray them with uh, all kinds of insecticides, uh, which obviously is not good for the health. Um, so Title 42, the idea being, you know, you get, like if you present to me at the border, and I'm a border patrol guy, and, and you're like coughing up a lung and, and obviously tuberculous, tuberculous, I don't know, you have tuberculosis. Yeah, tuberculi. Tuber- yeah, yeah. Uh, tuberculastic, then I will send you back and just be like, no, Robert, fuck off until you're healthy. You're going to infect everyone else here, especially if I detain you. Uh, now, what it's been used to do with COVID-19 is to not process migrants, right? To do what's called catch and release, just bump them south and let them go. Uh, what that means is that these, so normally you could cross, surrender to a CBP agent. And that's another mis- misunderstanding, right? A lot of people will want to surrender, right? That they, they have no intention of not being processed, Um for certain countries, there's something called a TPS, which I'll explain in a second, which, which there would be no reason for them not to be processed. Uh, so these people will cross, and now they could just get dumped on the other side, right? doesn't matter if they are a person who is pregnant. doesn't matter if they're elderly. doesn't matter if they're medically compromised or weak. They can just get dumped. What this has meant is that um, people who are helping them cross, right, people who maybe charge a fee for helping them cross, are offering, like, crossings without limits. Uh, you know, we'll just try again. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere else, try again. And it means, like I said before, because of the combination of this and then this this hostile infrastructure that we're building, right, this border wall system, that people will try crossing in more and more remote places, right? Uh, and that is when people die crossing. It's when they cry and cross in, in places that are, that are hotter, that are more arduous, right? It, it requires days of walking sometimes. In, in like, And I've been in that terrain. I spend a lot of my time out there. And like for a long time, it's been more or less my job to be outside out there. And it is hard. So if I imagine crossing with everything I need to start my new life and carrying my child, it's very difficult for me. Uh, and, and I'm more accustomed to it than most. So it, it's, it's very difficult and forcing people to just kind of bounce back. Because when we drop someone in Mexico, right, if they are Guatemalan, Honduran, they don't have any network there, right? Uh, it doesn't exactly help. Like, uh, in, in, like sometimes we like this construct that like the, the border fuels uh, crime, right? Or, or like crime is it like they they talk about like like uh sometimes cartels is far too broadly used nearly always it's far too broadly used uh but this idea that the border funds uh like drug running and organizations such as that well you don't fucking help by dumping someone where they have no other means of making a living right where they're going to be very poor and now they don't have any mates they don't have anyone to go to to ask for help right like i don't blame people for trying to find a way to do something so like uh understandably like if and i don't think and I think it's largely a, a lie that, that any significant number of people sort of running drugs across the border are, are migrants or, or um, you know, I think that's, that's largely a racist lie. Uh, but leaving people dislocated there is a recipe for poverty. And I, I can't, you know, things like crime do happen more, I guess, when people are poor and don't have any other options, if that makes sense. If we go back to TPS really quickly, because I think that's important too, temporary protected status, right? Uh, you'll see people on Twitter talking about TPS. Uh, what that basically means is that they can't deport you back to a country. Uh, so it took Biden an obscenely long time to grant a TPS for the people from Ukraine, right? 500 and something people went into the deportation system between the time in uh, like November, December, when Biden's administration started being like, there is going to be war in Ukraine, the Russians are going to invade Ukraine. 
they were still actively in the process of sending people back to Ukraine at that time. And it wasn't until about a week into the shooting war that they said, okay, temporary protected status, we won't send you back. It exists for other countries. Uh, it exists for Haiti. Uh, it exists for Myanmar, Burma, right? Um, don't know if it exists for Syria. I think it does. Uh, but these countries were basically like, we won't send you back there. Um, and, and TPS is very important, right? Because it, it, it stops people being deported to places where they will die. Uh, and it's important to understand that like, you could have everything right in terms of your asylum application and still be sent back. It, it's a cruel and, and very impersonal system. So a TPS is important. And if you're into sort of advocating for laws, then it's an important thing to advocate for, I think. Yeah. Um, in terms of more, I think that's important because we we the kind of the electoral side of things is not does not tend to be our focus here but it's also not useless like the border is one of the areas most clearly where you can see both how advocating in that realm can immediately improve people's lives and also how both sides of the political spectrum use the border as a weapon to hurt people yeah exactly the border is definitely a stage for both sides political theater like look at joe biden right he's coming in he's signing this declaration on the first day i remember the day he was inaugurated i went out to the border wall just sat there by myself and, and like wept because it's just this horrible, ugly thing. Uh, there's such a scar on a place that I love. Um, and uh, he's done fuck all, right? He's, he's deported more people than Trump and he's, he's building his own Biden barrier, which is the same thing with that anti-climb plate. But yeah, like even if you don't agree with the existence of laws and lawmakers, right? There's this concept um, that I like a lot called normative anarchism. I think it's Wolf, the guy who wrote it, but like, we can move towards the state doing less cruelty and being a little more free. And that is a move in the right direction, even if it's not the end goal. And I think the border is a place where you can really make a difference like that, right? Like some small changes um, in how things are done would reduce the cruelty to people who have done nothing wrong massively. So I think it is an area where even those of us who might not be generally inclined to like electoral stuff, like it, you can, I think, I don't know if you can make a distance because like so many people in Milwaukee are watching Fox News and are fucking completely convinced that the border is just, uh, I don't know, people with guns trying to smuggle children or whatever. But yeah, it's an area where small changes in policy make a huge, like Title 42, right? Not even a law. It's an executive, or it's not even an executive order. It's an interpretation. Uh, the wall, right? Most of that shit wasn't built by Congress. It was built by executive order. So like that stuff, I think, is... Uh, a place where you can you can affect positive change for people. Now, unfortunately, we've got this giant fucking wall, and I don't think it's coming down anytime soon. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't actively try to make things kinder for people coming here. Now, on the direct action side of things, which I, I think more of our audience tends to support, one of the most obvious things is just like setting out, as you said, like drops of water, food, equipment. Now, that's kind of, depending on where you are, can be, shall we say, complex from a legal standpoint. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So, like, the obvious cases are one in Arizona, right, which eventually ended up, uh, the person was vindicated, but, um, I guess vindicated is the wrong word, but... Not, didn't go to prison. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what he was doing was right from the start, but... Uh, yeah, it can be complex. I think especially if you're in some of these states which are like uh, doing culture war, right? Like Arizona and Texas. Uh, yeah, the, the the cruelty is kind of the point. So if you are doing something to alleviate that cruelty, making an example of you is very much in the interest of those culture war politicians and judges and, and other people, uh, which is why it's important to do it with a mutual aid group, right? Like these groups are not just like uh, randos. They are extremely organized. I would also just caution that like, 
going out into the desert on your own is extremely fucking dangerous. The desert can kill you with heat and day. It can kill you with the cold night, sometimes on the same day and night, right? Uh, this is a hard place. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't go out there. You should. It's, it's an amazing place, but, but you should be careful. You should go with the group. So uh, if you're living somewhere along the border, there is a group of people who are doing this. They will understand what is legal and correct. Like, for instance, if you are not a citizen, if you're a green card holder, you should probably not go down to the border with jugs of water. You should maybe do some fundraising. You should, you should maybe do something else. Uh, and that's fine, right? You're still part of a system which is helping people. Um, but yes, there have been some prosecutions. I think in California, there haven't been any, to my knowledge, for a while. Um, there is also some interesting tech developments. Uh, one a few a long time ago now uh, called the Transborder Migrant Tool, which was mapping out like what at the time we didn't have the border wall then, right? But like water caches, locations of CBP checkpoints, and then I guess it was using Google Maps to make routes, uh, which. Uh, it, it was created by a faculty member who at the time was at the University of California who faced pretty terrible career repercussions for doing it. Um, but there are things like that that people can do too, right? Which you can do from your bedroom if, if that's your preference, if that's how you prefer to help. But yeah, I would caution about just going out there. Always look for groups, right? There are people for whom this is their entire life of activism. You can also, I'm sure, uh, I hope I'm not putting a bunch of like work on their plate, but Talk to Al Otro Lado, see what they suggest, right? Talk to who? Uh, Al Otro Lado, the other side. Yeah. That's this legal aid group. Um, you can just call them. I'm sure that they're, they're thinking they've been very helpful to me when I've been uh, when I've needed help for, for people I'm working with. Uh, talk to them about what is what is legal and, and sensible and what is not. Whether it's better to give your money or, or give your time or, or, or what you can do given the resources available to you, I guess. And you can also just show kindness to refugees in your community too. Like they're probably there. Um, whether or not they're visible is is a different question, but that's, you know, there, there are places where you can help people. Uh, another one I should mention, actually, just for folks who are inclined to help in a different way, I guess, is, is people just feeding people. Like, I really don't think you can ever blame someone for feeding a hungry person. So food, not bombs. Food, not bombs are always cool, right? Uh, if you, you want to do kindness without the state, food, not bombs, there is one in your area. Look them up. Um and World Central Kitchen, which is Jose Andres, the chef. Um, yeah, he's in Ukraine. Right? His guys just got shelled in Ukraine. That's right. Yeah, yeah. A number of them got shelled in Kharkiv, I think. Um, those people, like, uh, I do understand that he has some labor issues. Yeah, although I think he's he recently, like, came out and said that he had been wrong on that. I'd have to double check. but Yeah, that's impressive. Like, uh, I've said this before, this dude pivoted his whole life after seeing what happened in Haiti to feeding people who are hungry all over the world. So I do believe he's capable of change and hopefully he can change and treat his workers with decency and respect as well. But anywhere I am, right, where there is a humanitarian crisis, right, inside the US, outside the US, those people are there first. They're there before the Red Cross and MSF. They don't seem to get tied up in the bureaucratic shit that most large uh, global NGOs do. Like I've been in refugee camps where MSF and Red Cross are outside, not doing anything. Yeah, if you uh, it, it, anywhere I have been where there are large groups of refugees, refugee camps, people dealing with violence, the uh, the most commonly cursed groups are often NGOs. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are you know people in in White Land or people in fancy hotel mm -hmm. lobbies, you know, like and uh, that makes me very angry and very sad. But I don't see that with WCK, like. Uh, I have consistently seen them in just pretty dire situations, you know, like times that uh, give me 
bad sleeps, you know, and that they're always there helping people. So them, there are also church groups in lots of communities. Like I'm not a religious person, but like I really can't fault any of these church groups that I've seen coming down from San Diego to Tijuana to feed and help people. But I would probably steer clear of those giant NGOs with your giving. I've just seen them be considered bureaucratic and less effective. Yeah, I mean, one of the rules, this is harder when it's a conflict far from home and you you know, you know see some news that makes you want to help, but you don't have any connections. But if you can ever talk to people on the ground there, it's always best to ask them, like, who's actually doing anything? Because um, sometimes it is MSF, you know, sometimes uh, it, it is one of these larger organizations, but oftentimes they'll tell you, like, you know, the, the, the group when I was in Mosul that got the most consistent praise from people who were like living there was um, the Free Burma Rangers, right? Like there were all these massive international organizations, but when it came right down to it, the people who were like running under gunfire to pull wounded civilians out were, you know, those folks. Yeah, uh, yeah, those, those guys do some, do some very brave stuff, definitely. Um, and yeah, it is, normally you can find people on Facebook. Like I've never been in, in a sort of situation with a lot of displaced people where people were not actively on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find people there that just just like you just want to have a chat. And it, again, it's nice to have a chat. That's such an important point, too, because I think that, number one, people are often and it, it's easier, right? Like everyone has limited time, but you kind of leave it to whatever media you trust to connect you to people in these desperate circumstances. And like people tend to want to connect who are dealing with something like that, who are fleeing violence, who are and they also are connected like they're not separate from the rest of the world just because they've had to leave their home behind. And they're not, they're generally not excluded from the information networks that we all exist in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think and sometimes they're portrayed as like, um, we talk about them, not to them far too often in the media. And that makes me mad, right? Like I see that all the time. I see that happening when I'm doing reporting, right? I'll see people hanging out on the peripheries of these camps. I understand some people are worried about COVID or whatever, but so are those people, right? Like uh, just be safe and be sensible. And yeah, these people want to talk. I remember one thing that always sticks out, or they want the same things that we want. I remember, so in this 2018 migrant caravan, they were moved from Benito Juarez Sports Complex to this old nightclub uh, a bit further south, further away from the border, right? It was a very weird scene. It was this big nightclub with like uh, the mirrors and the the dancing poles and the disco balls, but it had been like mothballed for like 10 years. It was all dusty. And they had a special room for um, people who were pregnant, people people who had had children, uh, and and the, the the young children themselves, right? They were sort of just to keep them safe. Um, and we would go in there, and it was weird because there were still like mirrors on the floor. Um, but then I remember these kids. You talk to them, right? You know, what do you want? And like, first of all, one kid asked me for a teddy bear, and it just broke my heart. Like, yeah. I don't know why it just fucking leveled me. Uh, and then they wanted to like, you know, they'd enjoyed the same Disney films that kids here had, right? So my buddy. Uh, managed to acquire a projector and we went into the ceiling rigged up this projector and just set up uh like beverly hills chihuahua playing on one wall of this nightclub and these, these kids were like fuck yeah it's beverly hills chihuahua like let's go like the you know they were just kids watching a film like 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 they can be anywhere else and it, it's really easy to see them as like different or weak or you know the way they're portrayed in the media is like people without agency and they're not like they've taken huge amounts of agency to try and improve their lives and it's also so much focus is on these things that aren't, you know, medicine, food that are necessary, but like having a normal moment where you're like a kid watching a cartoon or playing with a toy is also necessary. Yeah. Like these children will be scarred by their experiences, right? By whatever's causing them to flee, by the flight itself and by the process of coming to the 
into the country. But yeah, we should do everything we can to protect them from those traumatic experiences. And just play, like, I cannot count the amount of times I have been like shit housed in a game of football by six year olds trying to come to the United States, right? Like, so things like that. I remember someone donated a couple of football goals and I took them down and set them up. And then, yeah, just having those moments of normalcy, those moments of fun, uh, like little, little plastic ukuleles and stuff, like, were very important because it let kids be kids. And, and that's, you know, they have every right to do that. Well, uh, James, I think that's going to make a sode for us. You want to throw your pluggables in before we roll out? Yeah. Uh, I, I want to plug, like like I said before, doing things to help people outside of networks that let people have power over people. Uh, so do that first. And then, yeah, you can put my name, James Stout, into Twitter and find me. I have a Patreon by the same thing. I write about the border a lot. You can see it in... Um, if I just plug one popular, P-O-P-U-L-A, uh, I wrote about the 2018 migrant caravan. So you can read my writing there. Uh, feel free to message me if you want to find any of these groups and you can't. Yeah, that's about all. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Uh, go do something good. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Uh, yes. 
the podcast has started. Oh, this is this, the start? This is, this is It Could Happen Here. This is It Could Happen Here. That's right. And you're Robert Evans. We also have Shereen Lani Yunus and Christopher Wong with us. Christopher? Hi. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of running the show today, even though Robert right. has you're right. done the intro question mark. Um, <laughs> Always with a question mark. That's how the pros do it. Yeah, you can you can tell allegedly can tell professionals. Yeah, uh, but speak speaking of professionals, uh, we have we have Karina Dominguez with us, who is in fact actually a professional and has spent eight years working in uh, reproductive health issues. Uh, Karina, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you on. Yes, Karina, what's uh what's going on? How are things? <laughs> Uh, things things are okay. I think I can say <laughs> um, they're not that doesn't great. Seem true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I pulled a guy yeah, out talk. of a crashed truck once, and as I was trying to like staunch the bleeding from a cut in his hand, I asked how he was, and he said okay. So I'm, I'm guessing it's that kind of okay. <laughs> you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Karina, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do and, you know, why why, why we, we desperately wanted to have you on the show? Yeah, I would love to. So again, my name is Karina Dominguez. I am from Chicago, born and raised. Um, I've worked in reproductive health for um, about eight years, but really what I consider about 15 years or so. Um, I have experience in working in the community in different capacities. Um, I love reproductive health. I consider myself a reproductive health nerd. Um, and it all started when I was a teenager growing up in Chicago, where just in the city life, you see a lot of things that don't really sit well with you. Mm -hmm. um, I knew a lot of young girls who were getting pregnant at young ages, experiencing trauma and specifically sexual trauma. Um, and not knowing who to go to or where to go. So these were mostly young girls of color who I cared for a lot. And I immediately knew that I wanted to um, do more activism and that I needed to do more activism. And the way my activism looks is through my education. So today I have a master's in public health um, and I also have a bachelor's in public health. And with that education, I've been able to provide sexual and reproductive health counseling. I practiced as a full spectrum doula where I've provided abortion care for people and also um, provided birthing care for people as well. I led a pregnant parenting program at a nonprofit for youth experiencing homelessness. And right now I currently manage a sexual and reproductive health grant where we provide resources to treatment centers in the LA area to integrate sexual and reproductive health for patients and substance use disorder treatment. Wow. Cool. So we are slacking. <laughs> that was an impressive list. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the well, thing thank you. that uh, made us want to chat with you, we were, we were having a conversation. So when the news first dropped that uh, the Supreme Court was yeeting Roe v. Wade into the sun, um, <laughs> there were a couple of different news agencies that did like in turn, you know, while talking about what options were going to remain for people that would bring up crisis pregnancy centers, which are um, shady as hell, as I'm sure we're about to talk about. But yeah, so that's that's kind of why we brought you in, to, what we brought you on initially to talk about. I wonder, do you want to kind of introduce folks to what those are? Because it, it, the gist of it is, if you like Google, how do I like find out if I'm pregnant or like, you know, I'm pregnant and I need help. There's a good chance old Google will take you to one of these places. And they are, shall we say, not what they seem to be. 
Yes, I think we can exactly say that. Um, And I am just going to say it in the most direct way I possibly could. A crisis pregnancy center is essentially a fake medical facility (laughs) that preys on vulnerable people, specifically people who can become pregnant. So, yeah, you know, we can use the term fake medical clinic. Um, I, for the purpose just of using the most common term crisis pregnancy center, I'm going to stick to using that term. Um, but yes, there are a lot of concerns about this and I'm sure our friend Google will pop some up for us really quick. Um, so crisis pregnancy centers usually have names like women's pregnancy center or women's health center, something health center. Um, and it's a very misleading advertisement. So they are anti-abortion facilities that manipulate people into um, having a full-term pregnancy. So these places are usually religious oriented. They have a religious agenda and it's not patient led. So some of these larger religious based organizations that fund these, what we think are smaller, tiny clinics are agencies or organizations like CareNet, Heartbeat International, National Institute of Family and Life, Birthright International and Rama International. So a lot of times you might think you're going to this small little tiny clinic, or maybe it's even like a community medical mobile unit. And it turns out they're backed by big money and bigger agencies. So they typically will implant themselves in communities of color um, near college campuses and low income neighborhoods. So what is that saying? That's saying that this is a woman's issue. This is a trans issue. This is an LGBTQIA issue. This is a BIPOC issue, Black, Indigenous, people of color. And it's simply just an issue for everyone. Yeah. And it's so one of the things that's kind of messy about these places is that if you look at like investigations into how they work, you'll run into a number of stories of of women who are like, hey, I actually like always intended to go through with my pregnancy. I just needed to like know that number one, know that I was pregnant. I needed to test or something. And these people advertised they would provide that for free or they advertised that they were providing stuff like diapers, you know, basic kind of supplies formula for free. Um, And some of them do, most of them do to some extent, but nearly all of them have some sort of like, and this is outside of kind of the abortion aspect access of it, have some sort of fucked up hoops you have to jump through in order to actually get access to any of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up like the diaper uh, point. I think that is a really essential thing. Because they don't not give out stuff. Right. But it's it's messier than they want to portray it as. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and it's a form of manipulation. Right. And I think, too, it's a form of manipulation to to deem yourself a full functioning medical facility where they actually don't provide those comprehensive services. And sometimes, you know, they might even say on the outside, like HIV testing, SIV, um, STI testing, HIV testing. Um, and they're simply not evidence-based practices. So what I mean by an evidence, evidence-based practice is something like condom use. We know very well at this day and age that condoms are essential to prevent STIs and HIV transmission. So a lot of these clinics, they might even say like condoms don't decrease your chances of STIs. They don't really matter. They're not really doing anything. And that is a really big piece of information that we need to know as the average person, because that means we have a lot of young people going to these clinics and having even their foundational sexual health education at these facilities. So 
this is a really, really important thing to take note of. Um, and I would say that, you know, a lot of people, even in my life that have gone to crisis pregnancy centers by accident, um, are, you know, being told that they can do STI testing, HIV testing, and even birth control. And then as soon as you go there, you realize that's not what's happening. Usually it's going to be a lot of pregnancy related services like ultrasounds and pregnancy tests, which we know if you're an actual clinic, that's, those aren't the only things that someone would need for essential um, healthcare. But I would say even more like going into the manipulation and, um, the gaslighting that they do within these facilities, which in my eyes is medical violence. Um, they provide even mandatory ultrasounds, make someone sit there to look at the ultrasound. They make fearful videos of misleading information about what abortions are and sometimes even have someone who's not a medical provider showing what an abortion is in their eyes. And the video may be of a baby that's whose limbs are being ripped apart. Um, even giving information like abortions can lead to breast cancer, or if you have abortion, you'll never be able to have a child. And this is your one and only opportunity. Um, and sometimes even going further, you know, they are sneaky in what they do because they might even have programs that'll say parent program, um, or youth sexual health program. And even with that, they're giving religious based agendas, um, and they are telling people misinformation about sexual health. And even so might even talk about um, very heterosexual sex, marriage, all of the above. So there is a very specific agenda that is going on here. Um, and we know, too, that a lot of these agencies can be really sneaky with what they're doing because they may even deny that they are a crisis pregnancy center. And even further, if you go on to their website, they might e not even have any language that they're religious based or that they are um, not providing comprehensive services. So there are a lot of different tactics that are, you know, within the the manipulate manipulative strategies that they use. Yeah, what, one of the things I've heard a lot about is like basically like f f not not literally physically forcing, but like terrorizing people into signing like fake legal documents saying they won't get an abortion, which like really like every description I've heard about that is just like, this is just terrorism. Yeah. Like that's just... absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, I find that to be really interesting. I've never heard of that happening, but just because I haven't specifically heard of that does not mean it's not happening. Um, and I think that, you know, they're, they're not all made the same. Um, they all function differently. And I think that's also what is really confusing about them because they're not consistently all doing the same thing. There are still other facilities that they might do STI testing. They might do HIV testing. And so to hear that is not shocking to me um, and the manipulative tactics that they are using for people and, yeah, I mean, HIPAA goes out the door, you know, any legal backing goes out the door with these facilities because they are not based on providing patient-led services in the first place. Maybe this is an ignorant, ignorant uh, train of thought, but if they're providing all of these like free-ish services or like whatever to these people that are desperate and um, it sounds like a lot of them are like privately funded by these organizations in the shadows, like what how do they benefit? Like where, like what is their, other than like imposing religion on other people, but like 
like financially and like I'm I'm confused where how they're still like able to function. Yes. They function very well and without a problem. Um and as I mentioned there's you know five larger organizations that are funding a lot of these CPCs but they are also um this is to be noted they are on the CDC website. They are on the CDC directory as places that provide essential services. So I think that also goes to speak to (laughs) the confusion around CPCs. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to give the CDC benefit of the doubt, although they do not deserve that, (laughs) and say that... (laughs) Um, they themselves may not recognize what it, what these agencies are doing. And so I think that's where the awareness around the actual function of the CPCs and how they even exist in the first place needs to be shut down and awareness needs to be brought about these places. And, and we know that 13 of them are funded by their states. So they are getting direct government money to be able to function. And then on top of that, also functioning with the backing of those larger organizations. Wow. Are they getting federal funding too? Like, I have some vague memories of like Bush administration programs that were funding just well, since I mean, Trump, Reverend right? Moon. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. Trump pushed a bunch of federal funds towards these facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I wonder. They... Oh, go. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. Go ahead. I was just, I was wondering, like, I wonder if there's a um like one or two things you need to qualify as like a uh what's what how did you put it on the website cdc uh um like they offer like services like maybe it's like oh this place has an ultrasound these are like this is why this is on you know what i mean like i wonder if they just like pick and choose the bare minimum of things to like qualify to be um considered among like people that offer like full-fledged care but Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's all a scam. I don't. I don't yeah, and, and I mean, I think that also is just a really. Um, I, I like that you bring that up because I think that would be a really ignorant perspective from the CDC to think that a place that gives a pregnancy test or an ultrasound right away is not necessarily your average healthcare setting. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone is going into an appointment, typically, you know, they're not getting an ultrasound right away. Typically, your average person who might think they're pregnant and is going into a medical facility is going to do a pregnancy test, sure, but they're not just going to immediately, the first 20 minutes you're there, do an ultrasound. Um, And especially knowing our healthcare system in the United States, you know, that might require referrals and another facility to get that done. And, and, you know, that depends on what your insurance is and what you can pay for and et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's a really big red flag to just have a facility that has pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. Mm -hmm. That to me is, you know, if I see on a website that those are the only two services that a healthcare clinic is claiming to provide, I'm running away and I'm not going there because that's very odd. Well, and it's it's very manipulative because it's it's one of those things. One of the ways in which you can tell is something healthcare related, shady as fuck. Is does it 
take advantage of the fact that very basic things that you need are extremely expensive. Um, and like ultrasounds, pregnancy tests, this can all be like STD tests, you know, can all be really, really pricey. Um, and it's just so like, it's fucked up that this is kind of how they're funneling religious dollars towards taking advantage of the fact that a lot of people like legitimately some people who use these facilities, I don't know what else to tell them. Cause it's like, well, we don't provide people with a lot of options in this country everywhere, you know, for, yeah. for some of these services. Yeah. Totally. And I do want to go into some of the people doing the work and I want to really highlight what they're doing. Um, So I want to give the utmost credit to two people um, who I do not know personally, but would definitely love to. Um, Dr. Andrea Swartchen-Rubber and Dr. Danielle Lambert, they're both associate professors at the School of Public Health at University of Georgia, and they're both co-founders of the CPC maps, which originated in 2018. So yes, there's a brilliant map where you can search the CPCs that are close to you. Um, And in my eyes, this map is truly a piece of gold because I myself have found ones that are in my area um, and was very beneficial when I was working with clients myself directly and would refer people to different services. So this is a really great tool for healthcare professionals and social service workers, et cetera, to refer to. Um, and I can't even explain how grateful I am to know that there's ongoing research about the distraught impact of these clinics and the distraught impact they have on our healthcare system and the ability to find an abortion provider. Um, so again, I hope that every service provider can find these this map Um, and use this map and really spread awareness around this. So um, what I want to highlight and what these two uh, doctors have found is that just to give some more context, every single state has multiple CPCs, multiple, not just one, not two, multiple. There are 2,500 CPCs uh, throughout the United States. And that is obviously a much larger number than the health departments in the United States. And, you know, as I mentioned, we know the CDC directory utilizes CPCs on their website. And again, 13 states are funded or are funding CPCs. Um, So their advertisements are going far and wide. Um, And to even go further in the state of California, the California Women's Law Center says that There are 20% more CPCs than there are abortion clinics. So I think in this time, yeah, yeah, we should be scared. That is that's a really concerning statistic. And especially looking at how we are going to be and already are a haven state. We are going to be a haven state for all the states around us and for people throughout the United States. So what is that saying? When we are a haven state, yet we are still competing with our local anti-abortion strategies ourselves. We are still putting up a fight as a haven state. And I think that is so concerning. Um, And even further, just to give some more statistics, we know that 58% of the clinics that CPCs that did not offer SCI testing also will not refer out. We know that only 8% offer HIV testing. And 92% 
that did not offer HIV testing also did not refer out. So just to summarize those numbers for you, what that data is telling me is that these clinics are not accounting for the health of the pregnant person, nor are they accounting for the health of the fetus if that pregnancy goes full term. And yeah, I mean, I, I have even, you know, more stats as, you know, your reproductive health nerd um, of one of my favorite research institutes called the Guttmacher Institute, and they are phenomenal and have really great data. Um, and if you haven't checked out their website, you definitely should. Um, but since we're on the bandwagon of talking about religious-based affiliations, we know that 17% of abortion patients are, oh, sorry. Um, okay. 17% um, of abortion patients identified themselves as mainline Protestant, 13% as evangelical Protestant, and 24% as Catholic. 38% have no religious affiliation and the remaining 8% reported a different religious affiliation. So let's summarize that. Religiously affiliated people are still seeking abortions too. Would you look at that? Ignorance is so bliss. We know that abortions are affecting people who are living in poverty and who are low income. So we know 75% of people that are seeking abortions are either living in poverty or are low income. Um, and fortunately, you know, throughout the past, we know that Medicaid has been a really big funder of abortion care. Um, and especially we can say that in California too, um, that about 24% of abortion patients are using Medicaid and that's throughout 15 different States. So I imagine in this time right now too, that number is probably going to decrease. Um, so again, talking about a haven state that has these resources, we are probably going to be mixing up how that looks um, and knowing that 53% of abortion patients pay out of pocket for their procedures is already a very concerning statistic. And so we are seeing how in our time right now, we have to be looking at different resources for people. We have to put on our activist hats. We have to be supporting our community and we have to be supporting abortion funds because already 53% of abortions are paid out of pocket. Um, and just to, to summarize one more point, 88% of people who are using abortion services are going to be using those within the first 12 weeks. So um, we are needing to see a lot of activism around abortion pill distribution and abortion pill education and what yeah. that looks like no the to like piggyback off of what robert was mentioning earlier about how it just feels like they're taking advantage of the fact that like things cost so much money and i feel like if you this work is so important because i don't think a lot of people know what they're getting into if they're like because we don't have a great education system in general, let alone about like reproductive health or like what happens when you get pregnant. So if you're a young person or I mean any age and you are desperate or you're feeling shame and you don't have support from your community or something and you see an institution that's like free ultrasound or like whatever, it's like they're preying on this desperation. And I think one of the only things you can do to like combat that is like try to educate people as much as possible that like. I don't know. <laughs> People are as um, they don't have the goodwill and good faith that they present to be to have. And 
I guess it just like ultimately you have to be distrusting of people and maybe that's sad, but it's the truth. Yeah, definitely. And I will say, I feel like I saw that as a service provider. Um, so as I mentioned, I worked in homeless services, specifically with youth homeless services. And you see that so much. You see how there is, you know, medical oppression for people of color. There is medical manipulation and violence for so many people in vulnerable situations. And as someone that has accompanied many people to abortions and births, I have observed that myself and I have seen how so more people than not are going to experience some type of medical manipulation. And especially if you are living in poverty, especially if you're a person of color, especially if you're LGBTQIA, this, this issue does not just stop, you know, with CPCs, if we take out all the CPCs, we also have to address so much of the institutionalized, institutionalized racism and all the things that exist around reproductive health, um, you know, starting at how to get contraceptives to when can you have children and how can you be a parent? And that never ends throughout the cycle, you know, and that parents, even after they have babies, even if they are a person of color, even if they are LGBTQIA, you know, they are still told how, when, where they're going to parent. Um, and there's so much control over that rhetoric for people. So, you know, I, I mean, that even goes back to me thinking about the uh, sterilization trials that happened against USC in the 70s and how women were forcibly sterilized. And, you know, that has nothing to do with CPCs, but instead we're seeing that institutions are finding this control and having these agendas and it is not serving our society. It is not serving our health. And instead, it is creating more trauma in our communities. And it's, it's crisis pregnancy centers are just one of many layers of medical oppression that we are witnessing in today's world. As a person who was working in homeless services, I was program planning for a lot of the resources that we were able to provide access to for my clients. So all of my clients at that time when I was running the pregnant parenting program at a nonprofit, they were either pregnant and or parenting while also experiencing their housing insecurities. Um, so I strived to find what the proper resources were for them to support them in every trauma-informed way I possibly could, and that were youth-friendly. So there was a local agency that was very, very close to where I worked, um, and their services always kind of felt like limited to me. So I met with them specifically to inquire because they were always trying to find some type of partnership with us and would knock on our door or call me. So I finally was able to give them some of my time. Um, and so their services always felt limited and non-comprehensive. And I think that is the, the biggest kind of like takeaway. Um, they always gave me really weird reasoning why they didn't provide birth control or STI testing. And based on their answer, as I mentioned, I just did not allow the partnership to thrive. So when I did more research, I actually confirmed from another service provider that they're from another agency that they were indeed a CPC. 
before I could spread the word, they also already had several partnerships with other homeless service providers. So they wiggled their way in. Um, and these other homeless service providers were also working with young, vulnerable clients. So one day I was actually invited by another agency to come to this presentation where I didn't realize happened to be the CPC. Um, the CBC was presenting at this organization, and it was one of their outreach workers explaining what their services were. So I took it upon myself to make sure that I sat in that meeting and I asked questions in the room with the other service providers. I think there were about 30 other service providers that were present. And I asked out loud, why doesn't your clinic provide birth control? And the woman from the CPC, who was the outreach worker, said, we can't give pap smears, so we're unable to provide birth control. If you know anything, side note, if you know, I, yeah, I already see the, <laughs> <laughs> the questioning, which I'm glad I received that reaction because that is the exact re reaction you should be getting. Audi audience, those of us with uteruses went, huh? <laughs> yeah. All of our heads tilted and our eyes were squinting. We were like, exactly. Please explain how that math doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Side note for all the listeners if you know anything about healthcare, you know that a pap smear is not associated with being able to be prescribed birth control. So, as someone that has background in healthcare, has a master's in public health, worked as a doula, <laughs> I continued to push back during the presentation. And it was very, very clear that I was onto something. Um, so this woman, again, she would always try to like come around, give me pamphlets, try to have us partner and say she really want to work with us and our youth. Um, she stopped after that presentation, I can tell you that. But anyway, so I keep going. I reach out to a per the person who organized that presentation for the CPC outreach person to attend and speak at. So I was like, I need to get to the bottom of this and I need to spread this word um, and tell people, hey, you're getting people from CPCs to come and speak to you to advertise your services. Um, so I CC'd a lot of the other service providers and I expressed my genuine concerns for the lack of evidence-based comprehensive care they provided. But unfortunately, the person who I emailed said, clients need to make sure those decisions are their own so they can decide if they want to go or if they don't want to go. We can't force them to say yes or no to go to a healthcare facility. So I responded by asking, but what if you thought you were seeing a doctor for your healthcare needs and then it turns out the healthcare provider is providing misinformation and might not even be a healthcare provider? Um, I never got a response from them, but I still continue to make sure that I was reaching out to everyone at that meeting and just raising awareness behind it. Um, and then I wanted to take it to, um, I wanted to take it a notch up. So I called both of this, both of the locations of the CPC. One is located in Westwood, side note, next to UCLA. The other one was in mm -hmm. South LA, side note, community of color. Both of my calls led me to the person on the phone telling me that they don't know where to send me for an abortion and that they didn't know where, what Planned Parenthood was, what they did, or where they were located when I specifically asked. So they were obviously circumventing the ability to even talk about abortions and what it was. Um, and that was all the concern that I genuinely needed. So in my present day, I'm still concerned with these clinics, this specific clinic that is local to me. 
I recently found out that in my present day work, there are currently three treatment centers that are using this crisis pregnancy center as a resource. So hopefully that means more to come because I will be working on this. And in this scenario, what I am doing as an activist and as a person who cares for my community is I will be educating these treatment centers about what crisis pregnancy centers are and how they can avoid them and what comprehensive services actually look like. Have there been more sort of widespread like organizations who are working to like a let people know what they are and then b also trying to get them like not to be funded? Absolutely, there are, and we need to shout them out. Um, there are, there is an abortion fund um, in California called Axis. They are wonderful. Um, they provide abortion advocacy and awareness and education, and they also provide direct services um, and fund different, they fund abortions in different capacities. So they might be funding the abortion services, the lodging, the transportation, and even a doula. And they partner with a lot of other agencies that are doing the work. The agency is called Reproductive Transparency Now, and they are a Chicago-based nonprofit. They provide a lot of information, data, awareness, research um, to raise awareness around what CPCs are and why we should be avoiding them. And I think I can say that I have the same goal as them in my personal life, but to ensure that they do not exist and are all shut down. Um, so they are wonderful. I would highly suggest looking into reproductive transparency now and also active, uh, sorry, access reproductive justice, um, who are doing a lot of really great work. And then I also do want to squeeze in other resources, um, for please, people as well. Please. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, first and foremost, I think the number one thing we need to know is that crisis pregnancy centers should not exist in any capacity. Um, but if you are a person who's providing resources, who is working with clients, who works in healthcare, treatment centers, whatever it be, please utilize crisispregnancycentermap.com. Again, this is the, um, the website that was created by two associate professors at University of Georgia. And I want to make sure that this spreads far and wide um, because it will be the matter of providing referrals and circumventing CPCs. Um, and I want to acknowledge that a lot of my data from this, from the information that I've been speaking on is from the crisispregnancycentermap.com um, and from reproductive um, transparency as well. Um, so first and foremost, that map is a necessity. Um, another resource that I would like to share to be able to find your state's abortion fund is abortionfunds.org. And you can search state by state. So, you know, I'm in California. So that's going to be Access, again, an organization that is an abortion fund, but they do more than, than fund abortions. Um, I also really encourage people to find their local evidence-based doulas, midwives, women's health practitioners near them. And I know that there's 
a lot of fear existing right now due to the inappropriate politicians that are making disgusting decisions, but know that abortion pills can be accessed and there are people that can help guide you through. Um, so I would say making sure that we're accessing the resources on a website called plancpill.com. It's a great resource where you can find where to purchase abortion pills and where to seek medical and legal support as well. So if you have a question about how to take medical abortion pills, or you need to understand the legality of your state and the area near you, you can, you can look on this website um, as a resource. Um, I just also want to emphasize like what community care looks like right now. Um, if you are a person who can get pregnant, this is truly a time to seek preventative care. And I know that that's a loaded can of worms for a lot of people. So I just, I really want to plug this in. If you would like to learn about pregnancy prevention, you can take a look at bedsider.org to assess your needs. I would highly recommend pairing that with talking to a provider who understands your lifestyle and can support you with finding one that works best for you because every single contraceptive is going to look a little different. If you're a person who does not like birth control, I want you to know to please still seek preventative methods, um, whether that's a barrier method or whether that's more so of a holistic method like fertility awareness method, I encourage you to still speak to someone you can trust to ensure you're using that method correctly. And again, there are doulas and midwives that can help guide you in the right direction for holistic practices. Um, and to continue on to my community, uh, my community kind of uh, recognition, I Hope that this is also time where if it's feasible for you to, if you can't yourself, find um, friends and family that you trust and people around you um, to either receive yourself or to get it from other people, um, have pregnancy tests around you and make sure that if you feel like you might be pregnant, um, whether you are using an actual method or if you're not using a method currently, make sure you at very least have pregnancy tests around you. Um, so that, you know, you can detect early on if you are pregnant. Um, normalize buying your friend's pregnancy test for their birthdays. I have, we just have to normalize that as a community and normalize buying abortion pills in case someone you know might need them in the future, or it might be someone that you don't know who could use them um, and to have that accessible if that is feasible for you financially. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think just to summarize, like this is truly a time for community support. And when the government doesn't support us, we we need to figure out, unfortunately, how. And um, if you got the ability, go get a go get go get snipped. Uh, go, go, you know, there's there's options out there. Um, there's options. <laughs> yeah, I, I I provide vasectomies, by the way, if you can just find me in my house. Um, I'm not good at it yet, but 15, Practice 20 more people, yeah. I'm going to not I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it oh, out. Oh, that's what I that gotta, room is for. That makes sense. Well, I got one of those. <laughs> I got one of those sharpening wheels and my butter knives are pretty fucking. Worse. They got a good edge. They got a Genuine. good edge these days. <laughs> Genuinely incredibly disappointed, disappointed. You're not using the machete for this. This is this feels like a betrayal. <laughs> well, there's other reproductive health care I use the machete for, but that 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 does have to do with crisis pregnancy centers, actually. Yeah. But. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll have a bunch of referrals for you then. I know where to send them. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, that that kind of leans into another topic I'm covering today, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to us. This has been very enlightening. Um, I wish uh, it wasn't such a bleak subject, but people need to know the fuck's going on. People needed to know this a lot earlier, but... You know, I mean, broadly speaking, the thing I keep coming back to in this whole fight is the frustration of, like, the rest of us, like, we, life's hard enough. There's, like, so much going on. People are, like, busy trying to trying to get by, trying to do their lives, trying to, like, find pieces of happiness in the world. And there's this fucking group of the worst people in the country that have just made this, made fucking access to reproductive health care up for everyone the focus of their entire life for 30 years and unfortunately now we have to like do that make the opposite the focus of our lives because we kind of just not all of us obviously like you've been in this fight for a while but most of us kind of we're not paying as much attention as needed to be paid um like most people in the and i'm not trying to throw blame on folks but like clearly the majority of people in the country who support access to reproductive health care weren't paying enough attention, you know, yeah. like that's the, that's the only way to frame it. Totally. And it's almost as if we are picking up the mess yeah. that others are, are creating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, after experiencing COVID as a society, everyone's a public health professional now and a mm-hmm. doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's I am nice a doctor. <laughs> Clearly, Clearly, yeah. yeah. I'm sending referrals to you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And people have a lot of things to say. And with that being said, I'm really glad that that these are conversations being had. I'm glad that friends around me now who I've never known to talk about reproductive health are going there and talking about it and also opening the door up for, you know, people like me to talk about evidence-based practices and what the reality is and and who's doing the work and um, everything that that focuses around reproductive health. So I, I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate that there are podcasts discussing this information. It's necessary. And these issues are not going anywhere. And, you know, we're going a little backwards. So I, I really appreciate your time on this. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. And um All right, everybody, that's the fucking episode. Go do something else. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Oh. All right. Well, Joe started. I like how these intros are getting shorter every every time. Yeah, we've gotten <laughs> it onto one syllable, so there's not much room yep. we can go from there. Look, you know what? An honest, an honest man. Only needs one syllable, sometimes less, sometimes half a syllable. We'll eventually get this down to just grunts. That's really what I'm moving towards is an entirely. Shouldn't we be moving towards like telepathy? Yeah, telepathy. We don't even record a podcast where we just yeah, like put just up. Transmit an... the information instantaneously. <laughs> just a blank audio file that says now think about farming. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I must say the... that that sounds very, um, that sounds very sci-fi. Mm hmm. And it's, um, that's my way of doing a slick segue here. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> because okay. today we will be talking, and I'm very excited to talk about this. Um, she's one of my favorite authors. Um, you know, I really enjoyed discussing the ideas present in old Huxley's work, but this one has a special place in my heart. Today we'll be taking a look at Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents and the yeah. themes and ideas present within. Yes, <laughs> back at you again with another podcast banger. <laughs> but first of all, um, hi, I'm Andrew, um, sometimes known as St. Andrew. I'm kind of trying to rebrand as something else, still figuring that out. <laughs> um, and you can find me on YouTube at St. Andrewism. But this episode is not about me and my branding. <laughs> This episode is about Octavia Butler. Born in 1947 and growing up in segregation era America, she became an award-winning sci-fi author um, with a lot of influences and a lot of themes and ideas being covered in her work. Considering the very white male-dominated scene that is sci-fi, the fact that she was able to not only break into it, but also present some things that haven't been explored before in with angles that haven't really been explored before um really um has touched a lot of people she was somewhat 
Afrofuturist, but she was also very much um, a lot of her stories really blended um, a lot of people of a lot of different backgrounds and 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 histories, and she always managed to work aspects of herself into her main characters. Um, she was a big critic of hierarchies, um, which really draws me to her, and um, she also very relatably has at times struggled with writer's block and depression. She wrote over two dozen essays, speeches, short stories, and novels in her time on this earth. But unfortunately, she had a stroke and died in 2006. One of the, or rather, two of the books that have had the most, of hers, that have had the most impact on me, and of course, I haven't read her entire bibliography yet, but I hope to get to it. Um, is Power of the Sewer, yeah. right? And, you know, I think a lot of people have heard about it. It gained a lot more relevance um, after, you know, as climate catastrophe continued to accelerate, as, you know, we drew closer to the year that the um, book is set in. And with regard to the second book, as we had, you know, Trump come into office. Um, and I'll get into why that's relevant in a bit. In the first book, um, just to give a brief synopsis, global climate change and economic crisis has led to a whole set of social crisis and chaos in the early 2020s. Um, the book is set in California and they are struggling with pervasive water shortages and masses of poor people who will do basically anything to live to see another day. Everybody is struggling. So basically today, in this setting, 15-year-old Lauren Olamina lives inside a gated community with her preacher father, family, and neighbors, sheltered somewhat from the surrounding chaos. However, when we hear gated community now, we think of, you know, like really rich people. But in this case, gated community is just like a regular community that had to put up a bunch of walls to prevent like pyromaniacs from like reading. yeah it's like a it's it's a suburb that used to be like a well-off suburb but as things got worse it just turned into people hiding behind their walls because they were scared of poor folks right like it's there's an Pretty element much. of it that almost <laughs> reads like a slasher movie in the opening of the book which is one of the things that's really compelling about it yeah 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 they really um she really gets you invested in the setting and in the character early on and part of what really gets you invested in lauren as a protagonist is the fact that she suffers from a unique vulnerability or strength depending on how you look at it um oftentimes vulnerability and that is hyper empathy syndrome um, which is basically that she's able to feel others emotions others pains so when others are very, very sad. She feels very, very sad. Uh, when others are in pain, she feels that same excruciating pain um, and so on and so forth. And so she has to sort of navigate this chaos world while dealing with this, um, with this um, disorder that she's struggling with. At the same time, though, she's also navigating faith and the idea of faith and, and philosophy because her father is like a preacher and he is the preacher of their little gated community. 
And so she has grown up in the church, but she also has found issues in um, the religion that she grew up in. Places where she thinks it is sort of led people astray. And that's kind of also what has drawn me to Lauren as a character because I too, you know, have had to negotiate and navigate that whole religious realm. And so that's basically the setting. She's in this community. Um, it's chaos on the outside. She's navigating her hyperempathy syndrome and she's also dealing with the ideas of religion and change and so on and so forth. So as she's there, um, sort of thinking internally, she's keeping this journal and she's developing this new system of thought, which she calls Earthseed. And we're going to get into Earthseed, but it basically shapes uh, the decisions that she makes and the outcome of both books and as well as how they progress throughout. The second book places her in, I'm really trying not to spoil, uh, which is difficult to do because the second book leads directly after the first book and so on and so forth. But I'll try to speak in broad brushes because I really think people should go and read it as blind as possible. Um, Lauren, of course, eventually we will get into spoilers, by the way. So I'll, I'll try to let folks know when we get into that. But in the second book, um, Lauren is working on a community, um, founded on her faith, Earthseed. And they begin to face persecution, I'll say, after the election of this ultra conservative president who vows to quote, make America great again. Mm -hmm. Being, you know, a young black woman in a minority religious faction in the United States of America, um, her colony becomes a target of President Jarrett's reign of terror. Um, and at the same time, Lauren's future daughter is navigating the discovery of the mother that she didn't knew that she didn't know through the journals that her mother kept through the years. And I think I'll leave it at that. There are a lot of themes that, you know, Butler covers in these texts. Um, and in fact, I've seen them described as Butlerian, which I would agree with because she covers them in other books of hers as well in different ways. Um, she talks about poverty and slavery and freedom. She talks about perseverance. She navigates the this idea of community and what community means. What, how community is both a balance of inclusion and exclusion at the same time, and also the whole cycle of creation, destruction, and rebirth that really defines human history. Right now, well, in that book, so in the setting of that book, um, slavery has made a comeback more than it already has. You know, you have these extreme forms of debt slavery and marital slavery and probably even plantation slavery. Um, I believe plantation slavery is mentioned in the second book. Um, and of course, the slavery is inflicted upon the poor. Yeah, and a lot of like company poor. town style slavery, yeah. right? Where people yeah. are like bonded, bound to a specific location because of their employer who protects them in this 
increasingly dangerous bandit-filled world. Yeah. Exactly. And in this world, you know, race remains a factor. Even though these books are written in the 80s and 90s, I believe. Parable of the Sower is uh, 93 and yeah, Purple Talents is 98. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So again, like he's got, or, or Butler has a character using the same phrase Trump would win the presidency on, um, what is it, uh, 24 years before the start of his campaign. Um, hard to overstate exactly. the degree to which she was ahead of the curve on a lot of things. Because, I mean, to be fair, she knew America. Oh, yeah. You know, she grew up in segregation year America. Yeah. She had to deal with, um, her mother was a domestic laborer. And so she had to go in with her mother in these rich white families places through the back door. Um, and, you know, obviously that would have shaped how she saw herself and herself in relation to the wider world, through to America as an idea. And so I think that as she's writing of this, you know, sort of horrific future, she's drawing a lot from her horrific past, or rather America's horrific past, of which her history is a part. So Lauren, who is in some ways Octavia Butler's self-insert, um, spends a lot of time in the book, in both books, allying with people who are also minorities, who come from mixed backgrounds, people who are, tend to be overlooked by the dominant Christian, religious, right, white um, order. Because I believe she finds some sense of safety and strength in people who have been so maligned. Slavery also ends up affecting Lawrence community too, um, in many ways that I don't want to spoil. But despite it all, the theme of perseverance is really what carries the story along. <laughs> Lauren ultimately is the archetype of the perseverer. You know, she preaches a sermon on the importance of perseverance. She tries to get others to see the importance of hard work and she sticks to her goals no matter what happens. And a lot happens that would quite honestly discourage a lot of people, to put it lightly, and yet she perseveres. And so to tie that in as well to American history, um, particularly in the first book, she ends up having to make a journey north um, to Northern California. And throughout that journey, she, you know, she meets with other people and interacts with other people. Um, she makes allies and avoids enemies. And... You could honestly draw some parallels to the Underground Railroad. Of course, it's not an exact one-to-one, -one, but in the sense of having to work with people along the way to progress out of a terrible situation, a hellish situation, for the hope, not the guarantee, but the hope of some form of salvation when you get to the end of the journey. She doesn't do it alone. She does it with others. Um, and that's kind of what keeps her hope alive, but it's not just external. She has a lot of intrinsic motivation to persevere, which is driven by her philosophy. 
I, I mean, I think one of the things, because there's there's a lot of meaning in why she picks the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents for, and it, it's pretty obvious in the That's context right. of the books. It's she's not like hiding it under layers or anything. But one of the things that, in particular, the second book deals with, um, I mean, in the first book too, to a degree, is kind of the um, the pointlessness of responding to dystopian change in society by just like hunkering down in a bunker and trying to hide from it and protect your family. Like the, exactly. one of the reoccurring themes is the degree to which that doesn't work. And and one of the things that's really interesting about this is a dystopian novel. Um, this is a, a novel that is, both of these novels are kind of imagining the collapse of a lot of aspects of American society, but it is not, at no point does the United States really collapse in these books. And and even like as much as authoritarianism is present, at no point is the government completely taken over and completely under the control of like a unified fascist regime or anything. Yeah, like, like elections when, are still happening, campaigns elections are still are going st- on. The police yeah. still exist, but you know, you still have to pay them to, you know, for them to pay yeah, any attention and, to you. And and the the like Christian death squad type things that are roaming around are are distinctly non-state actors. They have backing to an extent from the state. They're not really right. opposed by it, but it's 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 again, it's this thing that we we are actually dealing with where collapse doesn't look like okay, everything's fallen apart, and now it's whoever's got the strongest group of buddies who can who can you know do their best in the wasteland. It's like no no no. It is about groups of people trying to navigate in an increasingly dysfunctional state, and the the only way to actually survive that is um, survival is complicated, and it's never as simple as just like picking a good farm to hide on. You know that that's exactly. that's not going to work out for you. Exactly. I, would, I just wanted to point out as well that as dysfunctional as things are, people are still going to work. Not just the people yeah. who are you know in company towns or in debt bondage, but even Lauren's father. You know, he takes his bike every day and rides yeah. out into that chaos to go and work for a wage to come back and to try to support his family. And of course, in this gated community, we see that their attempts to stay gated, you know, is ultimately futile. Like the rich mm-hmm. have their high security communities and they're able to escape in helicopters when anything happens, but they have no security even in this illusion of security and that hunkering down strategy they were taking wasn't working. And the first half of the book really shows why. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a, it's a book about collapse by somebody who's, uh, who, who grew up in a situation where her, her childhood had a lot of elements of the collapse that many particularly like, uh, fo- many folks are concerned about now like that's what she grew up in was there's no there's no protection violence uh, can come from all sides and is random um and you have no there are no guarantees in this like world that you've come into which is this thing that like people are freaking out about now as we encounter kind of aspects of the the world order that we had grown up with that we feel like are falling apart. And I think the thing that's so compelling about Butler is her books kind of are coming from the perspective of someone for whom that order and that world were never real. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why her contributions to sci-fi are so valuable, Mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of these sci-fi writers are just like, 
regular privileged white guys and you know and, and they just come with that experience and this it's an often um repeated critique of of sci-fi um you see it in tweets and stuff sometimes where like a lot of it is just like particularly like alien related sci-fi it's like whoa what if white the things that white people did to other people happen to white people <laughs> you know like this whole idea that these alien invasion um fears and alien invasion stories are just like what if colonialism but to white people to rich countries you know mm-hmm. another part of the reason that the um attempt to hunker down and stuff and basically exclude others um from their community failed is because and lauren writes this in her diary exclusion breeds resentment among the excluded so even though lauren's neighborhood while you know gated and walled and stuff was not particularly rich just the mere fact that they had those walls up basically signaled to the outside world that they had something to hide some sort of resources they wanted to safeguard even if the only thing they had to safeguard were themselves because a lot of the members of the community were you know unemployed and extremely poor that alone sort of symbolized uh sort of it was sort of a beacon um drawing people to eventually um attack and that's a slight spoiler but yeah and you know despite the problems that exclusion ends up causing um Lauren as she realizes that her community could not handle that approach even then as she's progressing you north know, and stuff and she's debating with herself you know who to bring into her fold exclusion and inclusion they they play a, a role you know um she has to find form bonds and you know stay safe but at the same time the bonds that she forms could put her in danger if she's betrayed or if the people that she invests in end up being harmed in some way because the harm that they experience will ultimately affect her as well so as Lauren is making her way up north she is continuing to wrestle with this idea of inclusion and exclusion because as she's progressing north in hopes of you know building a community of some kind creating joining forming a community of some kind she's also forming and establishing her religion like i mentioned before it played a major role in the community that she came from and in fact novel points out that one of the reasons people are attracted to you know religion to christianity in this chaotic time and in general really is because it provides hope and hope in the form of an afterlife and hope is what people really really need in these hellish 2020s that they are dealing with the lauren comes to realize that the hope and the hope in the afterlife ultimately isn't enough for the people that have invested so much into it um one of the people in the community um ends up despite being a staunch believer that um trigger warning by the way for 
suicide. Um, despite being a, a strong believer that, you know, suicide is a sin and it'll send you straight to hell, she has so lost hope and can no longer trust in, has been dealing with so much pain that she ends up taking her own life. And she takes her own life, and as Lauren remarks, she takes her own life knowing, um, or at least believing, the pain hereafter. And yet, she finds it more of a reprieve than the pain she was experiencing here now. And so, as Lauren is witnessing these things happening around her, um, is dealing with, you know, loss and her baptism and her father's commitment to the church, she is continuing to develop the idea of Earthseed. And she begins to contrast Earthseed from Christ- with Christianity, um, and particularly in the sense of how the two religions address hope and change. In Christianity, you know, they have the hope um, of the afterlife against this brutal life life now life whereas Earthseed simply presents the central principle God is change that's the first principle of Earthseed second is that shape God so first you have to recognize and accept that change is inevitable often destructive but you could also recognize you have the power to shape it Um, and so from that comes the third principle which is to, to um, pursue the destiny. The destiny being the establishment of humanity on other worlds. And to be quite honest, I um, as this is one aspect of, of the philosophy of Earthsea that I think I, I diverge from. Um, Lauren, of course, has a lot of focus on the heavens, as in the cosmic heavens, and scattering Earth seed, which is, you know, humanity across, you know, all these different planets, establishing ourselves in different worlds. But I feel as though the destiny is, in a way, I wouldn't say distraction, but I think it's. It's a, a misplaced um a misplaced hope, I guess. I mean there's that's kind of one of the points of the book, right? Because there's in especially in the second book, there's a lot from the perspective of her daughter that kind of shows how as as much her philosophy is a really understandable and in some ways admirable adaptation to the completely fucked up times she was born into, it's also in the same way that a lot of other people's philosophies become, you know, and that her parents and stuff uh, are earlier in the first book, it's a way for her to kind of justify not paying attention to the people in her life and not, not taking proper care of them. Cause she's got this thing that's bigger than them. Yeah. That she works. Yeah. Towards. Um, and you really, by the, by the end of the second book, you really have to sort of contend with the fact that, you know, you sort of have to grapple with, how things with her daughter will handle in the yeah. end. Yeah. I guess I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. And yeah, um, um, 
that's part of it. I mean, she's so dedicated to this cause, to this new religion of hers. Um, and, you know, she's recruiting people into it. You know, she's selling people these, this hope, you know, that follow Earthseed, believe in a destiny. Eventually, you know, space is going to become the real life heaven. We could actually get out there and make a new start for ourselves. For, for ourselves. And that's part of it as well. Part of the whole idea of the destiny is, you know, a fresh start for humanity, a sort of a maturation of humanity. This idea that, you know, once humanity establishes itself in other worlds, that it would have um, grown up as a species. Yeah, and it it's one of the things that I, I really respect about these books that I think a lesser writer wouldn't have been able to pull off is that the degree to which that beating you in the head with it, you see her as first failed by the philosophies and ideologies of her parents' generation and by the um, the systems that people had gotten stuck in. She's very much a character who grows up in a world where all the adults are stuck. Um, yeah. A, essentially like a system that has become a death cult. And she has to figure out a way out of it, which she comes to believe in so much that in her own way, she becomes stuck in that new thing. And it renders her unable to see certain things that are important. And the book never portrays her as completely right or completely wrong because that's just not how civilization works. Things just yeah. change over time. And, you know, the the ideology that her parents and the adults are all stuck in in the beginning of the book is an ideology that worked to a degree at some point in the past. Um, which is just it, it it's it's it does a really good job of of showing a number of things, which is kind of what it's like to be a kid realizing that the adults have fucked you, what it's like to become radicalized um, and realize that the world doesn't have to be the way that it is, and what it's like to let that radicalization lead you somewhere to where you miss important things. Like there's so much going on in the evolution of what the characters believe in this book that is is just masterful from a, a storytelling standpoint. Yeah, and I mean... The second book really does a, a, a good job showing her sort of blindness as well when it comes to mm -hmm. things going on. Because what ends up happening, one of the worst incidents in that second book is something that, of course, not to victim blame, but it is something they could have prepared for a bit more. Yeah. A lot more, actually. Yeah, it's it's they're good books. They are books that you will if you're like me, you will start reading them and you will get really into the first book and then you'll take a 10 minute break to like check the news and something will send you into a panic spiral and you'll read the next two books getting increasingly depressed. It's good. Well, it's a good book. The next book cuz <laughs> I mean the third book never released. Yeah, she never quite got to make it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get into that as well in a bit in how it ties into the destiny right yeah but just to reiterate you know first principle god has change god is not a person it doesn't love or hate or watch over us or know us it just is second principle shape god god is malleable god is power infinite irresistible inexorable indifferent and yet god is pliable trickster teacher chaos clay and truly emphasizes the change is neither good or bad but it is potential 
and we could and we have a choice to either be a victim of change a victim of god or we can become a partner of god or we can become a shaper of god or we could just stay as god's plaything as changes pray it's unavoidable but our actions can shape its direction and speed in the end change prevails and there's a comfort in that because once we un understand that we can return that effort the inevitability of change can be what thrusts us forward and i think um i think people who are invested in in activism in organizing and just revolutionary work I think there are aspects of Earthsea that I think could be very motivating, very impactful, very energizing. Because despite, you know, how circumstances play out, um, there's a recognition that we are never entirely disempowered. You know? And so, like, just the last point I want to get into about the destiny. I think that's what would make me if I were to be in this world, I think that's where I would diverge from the Earthseed orthodoxy. Because, I mean, Lauren talks about how, you know, history is just this repetitive thing. We have all these wars and kill a bunch of people and impoverish others and spread disease and hunger. And her whole thing is, just because that's how it's always been, doesn't mean we have to accept that. We can choose to do more, make something more of ourselves. And to her, making something more of ourselves is establishing ourselves on other planets. So if she is Earthseed Orthodoxy, I suppose I'm an Earthseed Protestant. <laughs> you're um, I think <laughs> You're, you're <laughs> Earthseed Martin Luther nailing your theses to, I don't know, the door of her house in Seattle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would be a reformer of the, of the destiny in the sense that I think the destiny could be creating a heaven here on Earth like rather than pursuing a cosmic heaven. I don't think it's even something that Lauren, at least I don't recall Lauren ever grappling with the possibility, because she really is fixated on this cosmic um, idea. I don't think she grapples with the possibility that humanity can mature, quote-unquote, here on Earth, you know? Um, she doesn't really draw much attention or spend much time thinking about things like ecosystem restoration or, you know, changing the pushing back against the, the government or the economic system that is impoverishing and inflicting violence upon people. She's just really fixated on the destiny. And so that's when I get into the third book and the things I learned about the third book when I was researching for this episode. Butler actually planned on exploring the fulfillment of the destiny in the third book, um, Parable of the Trickster. In fact, she intended to have a seven-part series. So the third book would have been near the middle. As the story would have focused on another woman named Imara, who is living on an Earthseed colony in the future on a planet called Bo, far away from Earth. Quote, It is not the heaven that was hoped for, but grey, dank, and utterly miserable. Everybody is homesick. Um, homesick, not just in like, oh, I haven't been home in a while kind of thing. Homesick in the sense of like, you know when someone is like an amputee, 
and they have this sort of phantom limb sensation. Yeah. This homesickness is like a phantom limb pain, uh, a neurological debilitation. It's like trying to graft humanity onto a new planet and it's 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 like if humanity were a branch and this new planet was a tree and like both the tree and the branch are kind of rejecting each other um and so she never really got very far into writing parallel the tricksters uh, in fact she had a lot of different um ways of approaching it a lot of different manuscripts that she got you know a couple pages into and then discarded you know so in some versions the colonists end up having like a creeping blindness in others they get this telepathy um in other versions she has to solve a murder in other versions she, she becomes a ghost sometimes she's an earthseed an earthseed skeptic sometimes she's a true believer sometimes she's a hyper empath sometimes she's cured of it um sometimes the planet itself is filled with giant dinosaurs other times small animals other times intelligent aliens um and there's also this idea this i would say very twilight zone-esque idea that the aliens that they do encounter are tokens of their escalating collective madness and so the whole idea of parallel the trickster and what have been the subsequent books was you know the continuation of the concept of choice choosing to either, you know, live together, work together, struggle together, or, you know, fight and scheme and lose their minds, break down, die and murder alone. In a speech to the UN in 2001, that would be like five years before she passed away. I think she died in, like I said, 2006. She speaks about how before she even like started working on the first parable novel, she wanted to write a novel about a utopian civilization where everybody had a kind of hyper-empathy. But then, and she figured it would be a utopian society because everyone would be inclined to, you know, behave in a more pro-social way because any antisocial activity they would have, you know, inflicted upon others would be inflicted upon themselves immediately. But then she realized it wouldn't work because sharing pain the threat of shared pain doesn't necessarily make people behave better towards one another she points to the the popular painful sports of you know like boxing and american football you know and so she recognizes that this idea of everyone being a hyper empath could cause a lot of trouble i mean if everyone feels each other's pain who wants to be a dentist <laughs> you know who wants to be a nurse um and so she discards that idea and then she basically created lauren who is a lone hyper-empath in a world that is empathy-deficient. Ultimately, I think Butler gets to the heart of, you know, a lot of the issues that we are dealing with. Um, she grapples with a lot of questions that should still be explored. The idea of inclusion and exclusion, that balance when, you know, developing community concept of perseverance, um, concept of hope, the creation and destruction and rebirth of, you know, really life and just what makes life life. 
I guess I'll I'll wrap things up with a quote. Does tolerance have a chance? Only if we wanted to. Tolerance, like any aspect of peace, is forever a work in progress, never completed, and if we are as intelligent as we'd like to think we are, never abandoned. That's it. Hardest change, shape God, peace. Well, I think that's about as good a line as any to end on. Go read Octavia Butler if you haven't. Check her out. Go to the library. Her shit's all over the library. Libraries are filthy with Octavia Butler books. You'll find it. Or steal it off the internet. She's not going to mind. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.